0: Okay everybody, welcome to a, uh, another podcast, uh, episode 4. Um, not too much of an intro for this one, because um, we pretty much talk about how we met and uh, all that stuff on on this one. But just wanted to quickly say, yeah, I really enjoyed this one with the guy I met online racing, Warren. And um, we talk about Daytona, which has actually been uh, run and won now. Um, yeah, Warren did his first enduro with my uh, online racing team, Aussie Car, and um, did really well. Actually, out of four of us, uh, oh, sorry, five five drivers, he uh, did the most laps, 189 laps around Daytona in the LMP2, which, trust me, is uh, <laughs> no easy task. So yeah, not too bad for an old bloke. And um, yeah, we did all right. We finished uh, eighth in class, ran as high as top three probably realistically would have been top five with a clean run but so how iRacing works is there was about 800 teams um, that uh, entered and they divide that into splits of 50 so 50 cars uh, in each server racing for 24 hours and um, yeah we're in split three out of 16 so uh, yeah I hope you enjoy this one we talk about a wide variety of subjects and I'm sure Warren will be back at some time in the future because I'm pretty sure he's got a couple left in him yet so yeah thanks everyone for tuning in and I hope you enjoy this one Warren Henry cheers so yeah so thanks for coming on anyway man for having a chat
1: yeah well um as as uh, I have no idea what we're going to talk about you haven't told me (laughs) so uh...
0: (laughs) <laughs> Actually, um, I'm just gonna um, just give me a sec, folks. I'm just gonna be reading, crack a little refreshment while we chat because it is um, past twelve o'clock over here.
1: Well, it's a reasonable hour here, and I suppose I can. It's uh, Christmas. It's Christmas, so I can I can twist the top off one as
0: well. So yeah, why not? Well, last one I did with Stalo at the start, I heard him crack a beer mm-hmm. at the start, and I was like, oh, that, that made me thirsty. <laughs> I was like, oh, next well, time I got to remember. Merry you Christmas, Kill Kenny. Yeah, cheers, man. Cheers for coming on. Appreciate it. Mm. Yeah. So basically, to explain, um, so how I met you, you managed to find your way to my um, humble little Aussie car, I racing league, and started coming in race control. Um, after, yeah, a few weeks and just sort of having a bit of a chat and then i kind of realized um yeah you know we sort of fell out of the same tree hit a few different branches on the way down but similar kind (laughs) of thinking kind of and um and then um we got talking a bit more and there's a few things that you just kind of casually dropped that i was like wow okay that really interested me um so yeah and then i actually basically you, you um so Yeah, we'll we'll start with the racing, but basically um, just to give people listening a little bit of an intro, what kind of definitely sparked my interest about you. So you're an author, you've written um, a couple of books, and one of them, which you sent to me, Fat is the New Muesli, so we're going to talk about that a fair bit, how I lost 16 kilos in just eight weeks effortlessly and got a holiday in Sardinia without spending a cent so yeah I I had actually just finished reading it today because i would got most of the way through it Um, and look we'll come back to the book but um yeah so in the back it's kind of got your little bit of a bio so I'm just going to quickly read that out for the uh, for the listeners so basically it says um, eight years in Navy counterintelligence 24 years as a private investigator 11 years in hospitality 14 years as a life skills and management trainer, 24 years in wine making and exporting, 2 years in film production, 28 years as a musician, 7 years sailing, 11 years instructing martial arts, 7 years as an aviator, 15 years in motorsport, um, and your most interesting role, which has been 33 years as a parent. Now, I get tired. Away that,
1: I get like tired that. hearing all of that.
0: That sparked my interest but <laughs> man. I was like, just going to say like, fuck, man. I thought that I'd, I'd like, you know, <laughs> I know you're a little bit older than me, but man, I thought I'd done a fair bit of stuff. But yeah, geez, man, you, um, you've done a lot of stuff. You haven't really hung around in life, have you? Yeah,
1: but I I didn't plan any of it. That's kind of, you know, that's kind of how life works, isn't it? I did yeah. start out at one stage in high school with uh, people thinking I might be a lawyer. Um, that never happened.
0: <laughs> really? Okay, that's interesting.
1: Um, so, uh,
0: yeah, look, we're going to actually, I'm going to try and get through every single one of those. And there's a little couple of things I want to ask you as well um, and talk a little bit about the book. So, But let's go back to... Um, so quickly how I met you so through iRacing so I'm curious to know yeah how you found your way to iRacing and um, what you think of it um, and then well let's do that first and then we'll talk other motor racing so yeah, yeah basically how did you find your way to i to iRacing?
1: Well like everybody else it was the pandemic it was the most exciting thing though that I don't driving fast has been a thing in my life from well before I should have been driving at all and There was a police sergeant that pulled me over and brought that to my attention when i was 15. um but i've always loved to to drive and not that i've ever been particularly good at it i did it all backwards i started with cars and then in my late 20s i went to motorbikes i thought that would be a good idea but started breaking bones then i did carts in my 50s when my son hit the age that was i think it's nine or something like that where you can be a midget so i said to jules i said oh. There's this thing called karting I didn't know about. Uh, maybe I should get Thomas a, uh, a kart. And maybe I should get myself one too. So I had <laughs> five or eight years or something in karting and then uh, sort of retired because my body just couldn't take it anymore. It was hurting too much and it wasn't fun. And I thought that was the end of uh, my, my joy of, because I'm of an age now, what am I, 68? I'm, I am finally smart enough not to be driving stupidly on the road. I have been of that age for a little while, actually, um, yep. but uh, then during the pandemic, when supercars suddenly did an e-series, and I didn't know anything about that. I hadn't. I'm not a gamer. I didn't know anything about all of this. I okay. once had a little wheel. I don't know back in the '80s or something, but it was, it was something nothing, and I could not believe what I was seeing and the quality of the graphics and everything else. So I said, "Jules." i gotta get into this and uh and so i just got myself a gaming machine and a monitor and a logitech wheel and pedal set and uh and started from there just doing the officials and then i heard about you actually i came across a a podcast by the locked on lads and uh and they were talking about you and they would have a little bit of a a wrap up each week of what was going on in the leagues and so on so after a year and a half of just doing the official races in racing, I thought um and and as you would know that in in the officials you never know who you're going to be up against particularly in some of no. the busier busier things like f3 and so on that might have seven or eight splits you're never racing against the same people so I thought I'd uh I would have a look at what you were doing, and uh, and and I loved it because, of course, you're meeting with the same guys every week. There's a different. Uh, the crash and burn mob are not as uh, as not as prevalent, and you're pretty good at getting rid of them. I seem to uh, recall. Um, so yeah,
0: they don't last too long. No,
1: no, that's great. Um, so yeah, I fell in love with it. So I'm actually looking oh, okay. forward to doing a little bit of uh, have a go at this endurance stuff with you this year.
0: Yeah, Daytona 24 hour coming up, so yeah, I've got um, be be cool to have you on board. It's a cool, fun. Um, I think. Look, I love the weekly stuff, but there's something about the enduros. Um, for me, it's just a lot more fun. The strategy. The other thing is, look, to be honest, five or ten percent of people that are in doing motorsport at a serious level are quick, right? Everybody else is kind of roughly the same, or down the back, so you know, it's a good way for most people to actually have like a decent proper result because, you know, clean and tidy wins the race, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah. So, okay. So you're a pandemic locked on lads podcast, baby. That's <laughs> it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, how I met you.
0: Yeah, okay. Interesting. And so you raced carts, and you basically said that the end of that was just, yeah, I can see, cause I've gone back racing them this year I've just turned 50 and yeah man that's one thing I will say it's pretty tough on the body I've probably got a few years left in me yet but I can definitely see a day where it's like yeah yeah well it's about
1: 55 I think when I stopped driving and my weakness has always been my neck you know and oh, the rest yeah. of me can sort of handle it alright but as you know you've she's a bit of a wild ride and you've got the oh. weight of your head and you've got the weight of a helmet and I'd get yeah. about 6 or 7 laps in and I'm thinking, oh, this hurts. And the yeah. last the last year I raced, actually, I only did three meetings. I had I decided to get out on top. I uh, I did one club meeting at Newcastle in Rotax Heavy, and I won that. And then I did two Rotax Enduros when they used to run up at the Rally Kart Club in Northern New South Wales. They were from memory 260 laps, something like that. Team of three drivers, and uh, and I really enjoyed those. But I also realised at the end of that that. You know, my days of that, and so I decided to give back to the sport and I was an official then for a few years, a clerk of the course and steward, gave back a little bit and got that different perspective on it before uh, I went back into hospitality and that sort of killed any idea of going anywhere on weekends.
0: Yeah, okay, yeah, interesting, yeah, it's the one thing about karting a lot of people probably don't realise is that it is quite physical, in a way, I kind of like it because it's like, at the moment, it's like a good workout, if that makes sense. My issue is my ribs, not my neck. And um, we're going to go to a different seat style this year. Um, ladies, Jekko, they're kind of more like a self-contained lay-down seat okay. to try and spread the weight. But because the G-forces, and the interesting thing is, like, the new tyre that we're using this year, it's about a second, a second and a half lap quicker than what they were going last year, again. And so the G-forces are just like, like, it's 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 hard. Like, I gas out normally by about the third heat. I get to a point where I just, like, can't go any faster. Just because, like, you're trying to hold yourself. And everybody does say, oh, just let yourself go. Like, you know, but, man, the Gs will literally just suck you out of it kind of thing. So, yeah. Um, but I'm having fun. I did all right. So Well, it, that's what
1: it's all about, isn't it?
0: I'll, I'll probably... I'll, well, the other thing I was going to say, the solution, I've already sort of thought, once my body does give up, I'll probably go on the dirt because... Um, I did a couple mm. of meetings this year in the rain. And once you're sliding around, it doesn't hurt. Yep. It's just that when you're gripped up, like, they're so quick now and they're so good. Um, a lot of fun to drive, but I'll say that. Like, I, you know, I kind of go up to the kart track with a grin on my face knowing that I'm going to be able to drive it. So, yeah, okay. So, that's interesting. So, you kind of been involved in motor racing on and off in, in, in your life.
1: Yeah, in your life. I sort of had four chapters. Started with cars, went broke. Then bikes yeah. broke bones. Carts yeah, that's loved it until I got old.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's and why now, I never went bikes. Hurts too much.
1: Yeah, it does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh,
0: well, anyway, it. Uh,
1: I racing's. I I love it. I'm you know I've sort of my rig has evolved over time. And
0: yeah, yeah, uh, it's yeah. a lot of fun. There's a lot to be said for it. It's not um, it's not exactly the same, but it's an excellent tool, and you still do get like a bit of a. You know, like a bit of a rush. It's not the same as strapping into a real car, obviously, but it's um. I don't know. <laughs> when you're on the grid, man, and it's like you're in a NASCAR race, and there's like forty other people, and it's official race, like the old, or even like you know the Aussie car F4s. You know, like yeah, the heart's pumping. Mm. Yeah, funny though. We're talking about strapping in. My uh my
1: rig has evolved to the point I actually I'm sitting in my rig chair at the moment, actually, because that's where my headset is. And I actually have a genuine Formula One seat belt for my uh for my rig.
0: The oh, only really? thing What's the only thing off?
1: about yeah. it is it uh it expired. They have little expiry tags on each of the uh, each bit yeah. of webbing and it expired back in two thousand and seven. Yeah. But nonetheless, because I use VR and I've got a little shake pad in the seat. So I get vibrations through the bottom of my seat and I got the VR yep. and, 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 uh, you know, and, the bizarre thing was my wife laughed at me, but I said, you know, I've done a few different things in my life, but I, you know, when it's serious in a, in real car, when you strap in and I used to fly aerobatics and the same sort of deal. When you strap in nice and tight with a full harness before you go for an aerobatic flight, um, you know, you know, it's game on time, and the same yeah. thing applies here in this rig. Amazingly,
0: yeah. There's something, um, yeah. I was thinking about it recently because you know Wilco done the Wilco and Cal did the laps mm-hmm. in the Formula Ford, and I could kind of um, tell, especially Wilco, it affected him. And I was trying to figure out what is it, what's the difference between the the sim and the you know the, the real. There's something about that. Strapping in the reel. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah,
1: it 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 surprised me. What a difference it made, particularly as what in v, in VR. It's
0: very hard to put in words. Mm. I find. I've thought about it a lot, but yeah, I struggled to kind of come up with something to be honest. But yeah, and for me, like the real like going. There's something about best being being at the track, going to the cart track, and you know, surfers, skaters, people. All, all sorts of people say it, but it's kind of my my happy place. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to Daytona coming up there. A lot of fun. Mm. It'll be good to have you on board. So, yeah, well, um, going back to um the bio, um, I sort of kind of want to quickly, like, go through actually where, you know, where you grew up, where you went to school, that kind of stuff. But, you know, the first thing off the list there is, um is eight years, you know, in Navy. Counterintelligence. So yeah, do you want to kind of um, tell yeah. me a little bit about that? Where you could well, start off that, where you grew up and all that.
1: That was my first serious, real job, I suppose. I grew up. I I, I had a very fortunate childhood. I was. I realised afterwards that it was a little unusual that, you know, I uh, I grew up on the north shore of Sydney at Kalara. I went to Knox oh, yeah, Grammar nice. School for twelve years. So, uh, you know, a prestigious private school its reputation got dragged into the mud more recently, but that stuff wasn't going on that I was aware of anyway, when I was there. Um, you know, there were a lot of other kids whose parents were lawyers, but I was the only one whose mother was a lawyer. My mum was the, well, when she pr- started practicing law in 1941, she was the uh, third practicing lawyer and female lawyer in New South Wales. So it was very unusual to have a professional mother. And yeah. my dad was—he only had a grade six education, so he was more at home and so on. But anyway, I—I uh, I, uh, um, grew up there on, and, and went to Knox. And at the end of that, I was a bit of a wild child. I did matriculate to university, but the downside of that is it was a hundred miles from home in Newcastle, yeah. and I had been in a very sheltered private school for twelve years. So once I got a hundred miles away from mum and dad. you could forget about education there was a there was a good time had and after a couple of years of that that uh, I got told well you might want to think about getting a little more serious with your life you can't be a tow truck driver forever really probably (laughs) so anyway I applied I joined the uh, Commonwealth Public Service and I was offered a very quickly offered a choice of three things, Department of Tax, Department of Health or something, and the other was the Navy Dockyard at Garden Island. And I thought, well, that sounds more interesting. So I started there and I started in the industrial personnel office doing payroll stuff for the the dockies. In those days, there were about 7,000 people working in the dockyard, about 5,000 tradies and a couple of thousand professional staff and engineers and techos and stuff like that. And, uh, after a couple of years in the personnel area, I got bored. So I became a union delegate. (laughs) This is long before Bob Hawke came along and brought, uh, the, the industrial accords, I I don't know whether you would remember, but the industrial landscape in Australia prior to Bob Hawke was just wild. You could count on strikes, beer strikes and, uh, petrol strikes before every Christmas and Easter. Um, it was just constant. And the dockyard was, uh, was no different. We had 21 trade unions that were all competing with each other and constant demarcation disputes and so on. But I, I became a union delegate for a while because it got me out of the office and I could stir a bit of trouble too. <laughs> um, but then the job, uh, the job of the do- dockyard security officer, which was on the general manager's staff, and it was responsible basically for all the counterintelligence stuff in the dockyard because the naval police did the physical guarding and securing and patrolling and all that sort of stuff. And, uh, it was, it was a fascinating, fascinating job. In fact, I applied for it and I don't know how I got it. (laughs) And, and, you know, I I was only 23 years old. Um, I had hair down to my shoulders. I was, I was a bit of a rat bag and, uh, (laughs) but anyway, I, I got this, uh, got the job. And then when I got into the job, they gave me the second duty statement. You didn't get that one beforehand. That was the secret one that sort of talked about all the spook side of the business. And uh, uh, yeah, it was a really, I mean, they've got amazing toys and things. And the fascinating about the dockyard is it had every trade you can consider everything from catering to flag makers boiler makers shipwrights carpenters everything you yeah, can okay. consider and are
0: they are they all public servants or are they navy spec- staff specific no no they
1: were all public servants the uh the dockyard isn't well it was i don't know how it is these days um was an unusual establishment in that it. it wasn't a commissioned establishment like platypus and penguin and Sterling <clears> over <throat> there in the west they're all commissioned like a ship is commissioned, but the dockyard isn't, but it did have a Commodore as a general manager, a naval Commodore and a Navy captain as the planning division manager, but everybody else were all civilians. So it was a bit of a strange little mix and the part of it, what was really interesting apart from all of these different trades and things that it never ceased I could just go walk about for days and weeks on end and, and just look at things that and things that were going on. Yeah, uh, you know, one funny little example of the sorts of things over in the weapons building, because back, well, we still do have submarines, but in those days we had the, uh, uh, the Oberon class submarines and they have periscopes and periscopes have to be serviced. You know, the lenses have to be polished and they have to be calibrated and all this and anyway in the weapons building at garden island up on the top floor they had the periscope repair facility and the first time i went in there and they had a periscope in the in the rig that was being worked on and so on and one of the things i noticed on the wall was that they had these um bearings marked and elevations and stuff like that i was just curious as they were showing me around showing me what they did and so so what so what are these they pointed out that if you want to have a look through the periscope, that these were the bedrooms of interest within about five or eight kilometers of the periscope <laughs> repair facility. The ones that tended to be more active than others. Yeah, right. <laughs> and well, the uh, the, magnifi- the magnification of an attack periscope is pretty something. Yeah, so I can uh,
0: imagine. <laughs> Oh, that's pretty funny. <laughs> they were, they
1: were lots of funny little things uh,
0: down there. Though. And so, being in Navy counter-charge, obviously, I was going to say as well, there might be some things you can't say, so, you know, you just say pass or whatever, if you, hmm. there might be some things that you can't talk about, obviously, but, you know, I'm curious, it's like, sort of, so, you know, what does that look like day to day, like, what are you actually doing, like, what does a normal day look like doing that kind of a job?
1: Well, there were several different elements to it. One was training, like all new staff who came in, they would, my office would issue security clearances and, and go through all of those processes, but yeah. there'd be induction training of what security meant because the Cold War was in full flight. And I know some yeah, people yeah, used to laugh yeah. at, you know, well, what the hell would the Soviets be interested in, in, in bloody Sydney, Australia, you know, they had bigger fish to fry in Germany and America and the UK and all that. But of course, we shared technologies, we shared weapon systems, we shared um, uh, crypt, you know, the crypto systems, the codes, communications codes, and uh, that sort of stuff with all of them. So, part of intelligence is trying to find the weakest, the weakest link, the easiest spot. And actually, one of the things that was really interesting was that at the time I was there, the Soviet Union had opened up to tourism only a few years earlier. Before that, the Iron curtain was well and truly shut, but they were welcoming foreign, foreign tourists and foreign dollars in. And some of our staff from the dockyard, when they'd go on their big European trip or you know whatever, began to want to go and do the Trans-Siberian Railroad or a bit of a trip into, in, in, into the Soviet Union at the time. And so part of my job was to brief them before they went on what they can expect because they would inevitably get a lot of attention paid to them because you know every every every, uh technical job was probably still is advertised in the australian government gazette what the job was so for example weapons technical officer grade two looking after you know anti sonar systems or something like that, that would be advertised. And then a month or so later, the successful applicant for the job would be advertised and nominated that, you know, Fred had was now this technical officer grade two. Yeah. And of course, you know, the, the various Eastern European and adversary countries could subscribe to the Australian Government Gazette. They they knew who these people were. They knew what their jobs were. So when they a visa... Sure rapp- they do when a visa application would appear from Fred Nurk wanting to do the Trans-Siberian Railroad, <laughs> yes, yeah. he would get a lot of attention. And then of course, when he, upon his return, we'd have to debrief. and So that was an interesting part of it. Um, determining what assets and things within the dockyard needed protection and upgrading physical securities. And yeah, you know, but it was a, yeah, man, managing the, uh, the, the, keeping our secrets secret. Really?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And uh, six months after I started that job, terrorism sort of hit Sydney with the Hilton hotel bombing. And part of my role was well, I had several elements. It was counter espionage, counter sabotage, counter terrorism, and counter subversion were the major, the major elements of the job. Um, Given we had lots of members of the Communist Party working in the dockyard, and things like that, that made it all very interesting.
0: Yeah, a bit of uh, a bit across politics. What was that like? Was it frosty or did they?
1: Oh, no, not really. They were they were just doing what they were doing and in in, in in some of the union positions that they were.
0: Uh,
1: well, they didn't talk to me and I didn't talk to them, really. I just sort of yep. did whatever I did.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, fair enough.
1: So how long did you do that for it was about five years in that particular role. And then it's uh, the first boss I had, a fellow called Bill Rourke, Commodore Bill Rourke. I loved him. He was a really good boss. Uh, he wanted to make rear admiral, so he didn't want anything to go wrong. And what made it interesting is just before I took on the job, an able seaman down at Nowra at the Naval Air Station had got Buddy pissed off and cranky and had set fire to a hangar that contained Australia's entire fleet of anti-submarine aircraft and destroyed a lot of them. I think it's about, I can't remember the number of aircraft, you know, it was 10, 12. Anyway, he burned them all to the ground and uh, Bill Rourke was appointed to head the Naval Board of Inquiry into what happened and up until that point in time, typically, the buck always stopped with you know the duty officer or junior officers somehow the commanding officer of the ship or uh, or establishment usually sort of somehow ducked and weaved and avoided blame but in this case uh went all the way to the top and sanctioned a lot of them and so the day i started he presented me with a copy of his report into the narrow fire and he said this is to never happen here mr henry Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, sir.
0: <laughs> and so, what did you learn out of that?
1: Well, we security officers in, had, up until that stage, been involved with those elements I just talked about. We hadn't regarded protection of assets as being part of our job. Um, but after that, it was became part of our job. So we had major security review of. I did a review of every every building in the dockyard, and I can't remember, it was hundreds of them, hundreds of buildings, you know, some of them which yeah. needed no protection at all, but others which were, you know, quite quite important assets.
0: It's kind of like auditing, I guess, in a way. It's just basically from a security point of view, eh? Like going around checking, okay, know all the buildings that we've got, you know, where the weak points are, like you said, what needs upgrading, okay, there's no camera there or something. Yeah. of like ca- that, eh?
1: Yeah, cameras were <laughs> cameras were pretty rare in those days. We we back in the we oh, yeah. <laughs> we're back in the well before times. Um but yeah yeah, yeah. yeah but it was that
0: kind of thing, yeah. That.
1: Exactly. And saying well, well this we've been ignoring this building and it's pretty important, so we need to improve and upgrade the locks and alarm systems and increase patrols or whatever that needed to be done. Uh so yeah, that was a big auditing process that uh yeah,
0: that took us a an year and a half days. And it's quite big too. A lot of people don't realise. So I've spent a little bit of time down there, but all of it, interestingly enough, on the water, <laughs> fishing uh, around there. And um, yeah. Some well, I a, well, I
1: saw... Well, I... One of the, uh, the... That Captain Cook dock, because a lot of people don't realise that Garden Island was an island. In fact, the ship's yes. island for HMA is Sirius. And uh, there are still under glass up on the headland up on the the island is some carved initials from two sailors dated 1788 where they carved their initials into the rock up on top of the hill Um, it's
0: got quite amazing history
1: yeah so they the big captain cook dock was actually built by filling in between the island and um, Bullamaloo, and sometimes that dock can be open to the sea for you know a couple of months at a time and so all the fish go in there Yep. And it is the sole right of the ship, Federated Ship Painter and Dockers Union, is that any fish that get trapped in there when they close the dock off, because they then, you how it kind of works, they have these big floating caissons that are just like big dumb barges that line up, and then they sink them and they block off the, you know, that's what blocks off the, uh, the dock yep. from the, and then they pump all the water out, and they get a lot of fish in there. And I saw saw some the other day being uh, lifted out from that. So it's quite a sight when the whole thing gets down to about a f- you know a foot eighteen inches of water in the bottom and lots of fish flapping around.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. What do they do with them? Oh, they take them home and take them home. Yeah, give them Could to their, their friends or the whatever. But
1: God forbid that anyone other <laughs> other than a painter or docker goes down and grabs a fish. The old dockyarded out. Oh yeah.
0: Yeah, the old unions, eh? Oh, that's interesting that you're around in that era because, like, I was kind of, when I started my construction career, the unions still had a fair bit of power. Like, they were still, we used to get the, like, you know, the strike because of the canteen was out of sugar and that mm-hmm. kind of shit. They just didn't get what they wanted. So, yeah, but that was kind of more like late 80s. So, yeah, so you did that, you, so you did that for five, about five years. And then, yeah. Sort of what, what came along next in Well, there? then, a, well, at the Bill <clears> Rock. <throat>
1: became an admiral and so we got a new general manager who didn't like me and I didn't like him and uh, yeah and so around about that time my uh, two brothers had uh, started a Mexican restaurant in Sydney and then they were about to open a second one and needed a new manager and so I thought well why don't I go and try something different so I left. They all thought I was a bit crazy down there in the, the Navy because I think I was eight and a half years in or something like that. It was almost up to long service and yeah. uh, public servants don't understand why anyone would leave A in the first place
0: and B that close to long service, but I did. Yeah, so obviously I was going to say we kind of glossed over that, but you obviously just had enough, eh? Or you were looking for something else to do? Or?
1: No, I'd had enough and oh, and my position was becoming political. There was as happens in big organizations. Uh, I enjoyed working for the Naval, Director of Naval Intelligence and the General Manager, but there was an overarching Defence Security branch that basically had their eye on my position. They thought I should work for them, still in the dockyard, but be responsible to them up in the city rather than the the General Manager. And so all of this stuff was starting to go on, trying to, you know, get my job onto their books and I didn't like them and... That old chestnut. Yeah, that old chestnut. So I thought, nah, I've had enough here. Why don't I go and uh, run a restaurant? So you sit <laughs> so... the
0: bullet and you've gone counterintelligence Navy to Mexican restaurant Sydney. And I would imagine at that point, pardon me, one of the first Mexican restaurants in Sydney, yeah? Uh, yeah, El Sombrero was the third.
1: We were the third, third in okay. Sydney. In this is in, well, when we opened in 1979. I joined it in 81. Um, and I think I might have mentioned to you briefly once before that probably one of the biggest shifts in my life is that I went on Friday afternoon from Dockyard Security Officer. Keep out. Keep out. Everybody's yeah. trying to bloody steal the secrets to on Monday. Come on in, welcome, please come. We let come and have a good time. And it took me, it took me a while to get used
0: yeah. to that. Yeah, you don't. That's one of those things you don't really think about. Mm. That you need to deal with, you know. Yeah, and um, that's interesting. Yeah, so you, and uh, did you made the adjustment okay? But you know, yeah, I made the
1: adju- I made the adjustment okay, and uh, then we opened a third restaurant which involved me moving out to Parramatta. And I married my first wife, who was a a waitstaff in the restaurant um, during that period of time.
0: And uh, And so let me ask you this quickly. So about Sydney, so in 79, 80. So were there, I mean, there was stuff in town, but in terms of like Mexican, Chinese restaurants and all that, was there a few starting to be around or was it still pretty thin on the ground? uh,
1: Well, Mexican was thin. We were... You know, yeah, when we okay. opened our third restaurant at Parramatta, and that was only from seventy seventy eight to when did we do that eighty two, it was the thirtieth. So the Mexican first Mexican right. wave had, had had just rolled right through. Okay, uh, in that period of time, yeah.
0: What do you reckon that is? They're like the markets going through cuisine at a time. <laughs> yeah,
1: and at those stage, that stage, we were still fairly. <laughs> Vietnamese had not really was hadn't really got going in Southeast Asian. There was there was a bit of Chinese, but yeah. uh, that was pretty much it. Food yeah. dining in uh, in Sydney even in the, in the seventies was you know steak houses. Uh, the cross obviously was a little more vital than most places. It had been you know supported town, by yeah yeah by being the cross, oh, and Arbor, also
0: they would have had Chinatown then. Eh?
1: Oh, Chinatown had been
0: there for a long time. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: Uh, Darling Harbour hadn't really got going at that stage.
0: Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, I just find that interesting because you think about, like, looking back, like, even, like, when I was a kid, so I remember I was born in Canberra in Ravette and Western Creek, that area, and I remember when the first Chinese came there, you know, and it was, like, a big deal. It was, like, I was going down to try this, like, and there was nothing else. There was, like, no other take away out our way or anything. So, And then you think about, like, now, <laughs> mm. like even Canberra, I went there just a couple of years ago, took, took my son to the snow, <laughs> and it was just like, yeah. It was Very cosmopolitan. Pretty, it was so surreal, because for me it had been such a long time, you know, 30 years, so it's like an instant snapshot in your brain. Yep. So, yeah, okay, so how long did you, how long did you do the whole hospitality well, stayed, thing for?
1: Well, stayed in the restaurant till... 83, uh, 80, end of 83. Because my wife, uh then at the time, got a proper job and she was working um like office hours, nine to five, Monday to Friday. And my only days off were I had Sundays off and I would have Wednesday off. Well, she worked Wednesday, so I'd go motorbike riding or something. So we'd have Wednesday night. It wasn't, and I, because I was working the other days, I would do split shifts, I'd work lunch and dinner. Um, so it wasn't conducive to, to marriage. Yeah. Yeah. So I left that and I got a job with uh, a fellow you'd know from the West. Alan Bond had taken over a a department store chain called Walton's. Uh And, uh, uh, I got a job as a loss prevent, took my way into it. I used my security credentials from uh, the Navy years to make out that I'd be really good as a loss prevention manager for five (laughs) of their stores so there was a lot of bullshit involved in that, but sounded good. And Amen. Uh, never let
0: the truth get in the way of a good no. story.
1: No, oh, I never have. That's what, <laughs> that's what Uncle Chopper says.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I, uh, so I, I was looking after security for and loss prevention for five of their stores, including their main one in Park Street in Sydney. But after about eight months of that, I got called up to the office and uh, presented with a cheque and i and retrenched i know yeah. i'd never been fired or there was a, there was a, a gutting experience to be rejected and not wanted
0: interesting
1: um and so for the sydney olympics uh, the sydney olympics the atlanta olympics in 1984 i was at home uh, my wife was going to work she wasn't impressed that i was sitting around at home but i was applying for jobs jobs were not as easy to get at that stage um
0: that, that be was the a... first time you've been fired, eh? Hey?
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, didn't, a didn't like, didn't, <laughs> didn't like that feeling at all. Yeah. So oh, I. Man, that's uh,
0: interesting. Yeah.
1: So anyway, I applied and I got accepted for a job as a security officer at the, what was then the Regent Hotel down in, the right, in Circular Quay in Sydney. I think it's oh, called yeah, I the four, I think it's the Four Seasons these days or something. Prestigious yeah. hotel. Yeah. But it was crap money and it was going to be, you know, rotating shifts and all that sort of stuff. <laughs> Again, I knew nothing about hotel security, but don't let that um, get in the way of anything. But as, as it happened just the day, I'd accepted the job but hadn't started. And I got a phone call from uh, a, a, a recruiting agency saying there's a, a, an insurance investigator up at Mona vale. He'd like to interview you. And I'm thinking, why not even less about insurance investigation than I do about hotels or retail. But anyway, I went up and uh, interviewed with this guy, Peter Cox, who was a very well-known and respected private investigator that specialized in insurance claims. And I, I was honest with him and I said, well, I, you know, this all sounds interesting and attractive, but I don't know anything about it. He said, I'll teach you. Yeah. And I said, Ooh, okay. And that was how I ended up in the uh, the insurance investigation field then for many, many years. I was with him for about four years and was a director of the company and and so on had some very interesting times. But he and I had a falling out just after I'd moved to the Central Coast. Literally. He'd helped me move the uh he'd helped me move house actually on the tenth of tenth of December nineteen eighty six. And then I was away for a couple of days. I came back and we had a fight. And I said, fuck you. <laughs> and I drove back up here and my poor suffering wife, God bless her. You know, we had a had a one-year-old. We'd just moved house, so she was nowhere near family. I just lost my dog. It's four days before Christmas. <laughs> I've got no idea what we're going to do. Got no money. Home loan interest rates at the time were 14%. Oh, man.
0: I've bought apples from this cart before.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but I was, I was cranky enough and I had been doing a lot of the client liaison for him, um, in the last couple of years that I'd been with him. So I had really good relationships with the insurers and I wasn't in direct competition with him because he was in Sydney and I was central coast and north. So yeah, I ended up building, uh, building my practice insurance practice then from uh, from there, which I kept going then through till about 2004.
0: Um, yeah, okay. And so when you say insurance, what does that, what sort of stuff like, what does that look like day to day? Is that like uh, people faking injuries or dodgy yeah. claims or...
1: Yeah, well, there are two. In, in the insurance investigation side of things, there's, there's two sorts of investigations. There's what they call obs or observations, which is the surveillance work, and then there's the factual work. And I did factual work, which is you know, a house burns down or something happens, you go out, you, you try and work out what happened, you line up people, you take their statements, you gather up evidence and you prepare the briefs of evidence and then report to the insurer on, you know, is it a genuine claim or isn't it a genuine claim? Yeah. Um, and if if not, here's the brief of evidence that you, you know, you can use to uh, to deny the claim and, and if need be, go to court and, and dispute it and so on. So yeah it it was it was interesting and i i became really through a lot of that most of the work i was doing was firework um and i had some absolutely fascinating (laughs) fascinating fires that i dealt with at various different points in time
0: yeah well i was going to say surely um i was nearly going to say that'd be mostly firework what's some of the like craziest stuff you ever saw doing that
1: Uh, well the challenge if you're going to do an arson the challenge is to... And I'm not going to give away too many secrets no, here. of course. But yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> he says giggling and coughing. Um, but, but, yeah, some people really put a lot of thought into setting up their alibi, not being around. And so you need some... Often need a, a time delay device of some sort. And yeah. one of the classic... One of the best I ever saw was this guy had set up the device, and he was offered some other barbecue or whatever at the time this fire was meant to start. But unfortunately, somebody stopped by his home, a brother, a cousin, or something like this, and immediately called the police because there were these trailers and petrol and so on all poured through the house, and his ignition device was very cunning. He set up a balloon full of petrol on a long bit of string so it was swinging like a pendulum, right, and swinging yeah. slowly back and forth. He had a candle underneath it, and so the whole thing was that it would take quite some time for this pendulum to finally come to rest over the candle, and then, of course, off, off would go the fire. <laughs> but what, right. what what happened was that the candle burnt through the uh, burnt through the balloon, and the petrol dropped and put out the candle.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs>
1: so the cousin comes in and sees all of this set up i did another one where uh, the the owner the insured as we call them had a very difficult time trying to explain what it was in his eating habits that meant that his toaster was on a timer because because he'd, he'd set it up with the kitchen curtains cafe curtains in the toaster and then he'd put a a timer so that the timer toaster would come on at a certain time and the fire would go. But (laughs) the remnants were all there. The evidence was all there. But probably the best actually was one I did down the south coast. Fella had an investment property that, and he hit hard times, you know, and he kind of couldn't sell it and he needed to get rid of it, he thought. There wasn't a tenant in it at the time. And he lived about five blocks away in this village so he drove around in the dark of night it was the summer time and he sort of reversed his car into the driveway ready for a getaway went in slopped a whole lot of petrol around um some things that arsonists, some artists don't realize is that petrol behaves when ignited very differently in hot weather as distinct from cold weather yes um on a hot night it (laughs) it vaporizes a lot more quickly Anyway, goes bang. He, uh, he'd done that. He'd stepped out the front door and flicked in the match and run to the car to make goodies' getaway <laughs> The car was sitting there, the engine was idling, and he'd locked the fucking door. <laughs> oh. <laughs> he, he can see the keys in the ignition, oh, the car sitting there idling. So he runs like stick about five blocks home and dives in. Well, of course, by then the cops have arrived, the fireys have turned up, the coppers have taken oh, a yeah. look and they've gone. Done a quick rego check on the car, it's registered. For, we, we, we better just pop around and have a chat to the owner of his car.
0: Oh, man. So Some people anyway, are just so stupid, aren't they? Eh? Well,
1: he'd had it, he had it all thought through, but in the heat, because oh. I guess you're pretty... You know, talk about your high pulse rate and thing going at the time when you if you decide you're going to flick a match. Um, oh, I can't anyway,
0: people the, do that shit just like throw some petrol and flick a match and they think they're gonna. Well, go sometimes they it.
1: sometimes they get away with it, but anyway, hey, the, cops, you, cop, the, the cops, the cops say,
0: I'll just finish this. Yeah,
1: the go. cops knocked on the door. Bang, bang, bang! Is the police knock, and there's oh, hang on, and there's, and, there's, and there's a bit of a shuffling noise, and then the door opens, and this bloke in his pyjamas and he's rubbing his eyes and so on. And the cops take one look at you can come with us because he 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 was bright red, he was completely singed from the, the whole front of his face and everything, all burnt, all burnt.
0: Yeah. <laughs> what an idiot! What an idiot! Man, that's classic. Yeah, I was wondering. um What's the percentage of, like, dodgy fires to, like, legit fires?
1: Oh, most of them are legit, the vast majority of them. Um, But it's interesting. Over time, I got um, very jaded and cynical, as you do, because that's part of your job is to catch people out. Um, And down the track, again, somebody offered to teach me. I was in the – talking to the – trying to drum up business from the claims manager for – GIO insurance household claims in Newcastle when they had a Newcastle office. And he said, Well, I I just don't have much need for an investigator. You know, we get one or two a month, but he says, I'd I'd sooner if you worked for me as a loss assessor or adjuster. And in those days they were two very separate roles and both were kind of suspicious of each other and so on. And it was unusual for anyone to do both. And I said, Well, again, like I had said to Peter Cox earlier, I said, well, yeah, I'm willing to have a look at it, but I don't know anything about that. He said, well, I'll teach you. Because his view was he would rather have, uh, you know, somebody with a jaundice suspicion, somebody who was willing to look closely at the, the,
0: yeah, the yeah. event. rather he had the than background some, for it.
1: Yeah. So he did teach me that. And it actually, it, it changed a whole whole way I looked at my career of, at that time, because I was now able to not just catch people out, but to be of service because when you, you go to somebody's home and it's destroyed and they're destroyed and their kids, you know, it's, it's awful. Yeah. Um, because they're not always arsons. They're uh, mostly it's a, you know, there's a, uh, a genuine reason for it. So I quite enjoyed the opportunity to be able to, to be of help.
0: Yeah, that's um, interesting.
1: And that... That, uh, and
0: that was obviously quite satisfying.
1: It was. I'm going to do a public service uh, <laughs> announcement mm. here. Something that came out of all of this is that nice. part of my job as an adjuster and also as a, an investigator is, okay, if we've got to pay for this, who can we get money back from? Yeah. Who else can we, you know, claim it from? So that was something I always had my eye on. And the number of times that I did, particularly in tenanted homes, uh, the, what we called them the oops, the chips.
0: You uh-huh. know, somebody's doing yeah, I painted chips a few the... of those over the years. Yeah, Don't worry, I'm,
1: I'm sure. Yeah, that's right. You're a painter. So yeah. they're quite, they're quite common. And one of the things that would happen is I would turn up, knock on the door and they were so happy that I'd turn up. It wasn't their home, they, they were tenants. But, you know, they were happy that it was going to be fixed and I'd, I would like that they were happy that so I would get the get the story from them I would take a statement signed statement and they would always be saying something along the lines of well my you know the phone rang I was cooking dinner or the kid was bloody screaming from the bath or whatever there was there was always a reason for it but basically that led to the negligent act and so we would get the house all fixed up but then we would come after the tenant for the the cost of the repair and that that's uh, that's very traumatic for them so the public service announcement I I keep harassing my uh, my children about is that every by law in Australia home building and contents policies have a built-in packaged legal liability cover the home building one covers you on the property but the contents policy covers you Australia-wide for acts of negligence so oh. you know I just say, get yourself a home contents policy because you could be at Coles one day putting loading the shopping in your car and you don't pay attention to your trolley and it rolls across and there's the Rolls-Royce there that's just gone scratching right down the side of it. Or, yeah. you know, you jump for joy in the airport and poke somebody's eye out with an umbrella. Those sorts of things you get cover for that comes packaged with home contents insurance. So
0: here, th- here endeth the lesson. yeah well it's funny because i was actually there was two questions you already answered there that was good i was going to ask you what's the most common thing that mistake that people make when it comes to that and what was the most common like thing that you used to see but i think about it myself like yeah as a painter the old kitchen fire was pretty much occasionally you get something else water damage busted ceilings but yep but yeah that's interesting it's another part of that little job that you don't really kind of think about all jobs have got, you know, those little bits of them that you don't kind of realise. So, yeah. So, okay. So, and then, um, so how long did you stay in that kind of a role? Oh, I don't
1: know. uh, 2004. So 20-something years,
0: I guess. Okay. So you did that for a long time. I did that for
1: a long time.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I've
1: done most of of the things for quite a long time.
0: Yeah. yeah, I was going to say that seems to be a bit of a thing. (laughs) Hmm. Well, I'm not as old as
1: I. It, it all makes me sound. At one stage, there for about 15 years, I had three three businesses all going at the same time. I had the wine business, I had the investigation business, and I also had the um, personal development management training business. So, so there were yeah, three okay. three interests so all going. Yeah, all going side simultaneously. Yeah.
0: yeah, yeah, I see that. There's some overlap there, but I think that's part of the interesting bit for me is talking to someone like you because you have done such a lot of things, you know, and I always find, Hey, I'm just kind of yeah, interested in talking to people like that, but it, you can always learn something too, you know, and they'll say, you know, oh, what, you know, you know, what about this? What about that? There's always little bits you can pick up along the way. And yeah, it's just a bit of a hobby of mine too. <laughs> to, Cause it's funny. Like we don't think we're interesting, you know, but mm. other people do. So, yeah, so 20 years. Of that, And then you mentioned the wine there. So let's go there. When Tell me a little bit about that, because you mentioned that in the Discord one night. How how about that, how that sort of came about? Well, that and, came um, about... what you were doing yeah. with wine, yeah, in, in Australia and America.
1: Well, that kind of came about. Uh, I mentioned I was in the Mexican restaurants and we opened our third one at Parramatta, which meant we needed another manager. And this delightful fellow turned up to be interviewed he just back from the u.s he was a a geelong boy but he'd already lived most of his life overseas he had just months earlier helped um set up washington dc's first wine bar so we're talking 1981 81 82 something like that you think Um, they would have had one by then yeah well wine Table wine was was, was still, I, I was lucky. I was kind of in right on the ground floor when Australians started to take to table wine. I mean, when I was setting up the wine lists, I didn't really know much about wine for the restaurant where we'd rely on the reps. But we'd have all those beautiful things like Benin, Moselle and Porphyry Pearl and Blue Nun, Riesling and some of those things we had just moved out of, you know, grandpa's grapper in the garage, but we hadn't got, (laughs) we hadn't got very far. Yeah, And it was the 1980s and the 1990s that the Australian wine industry just came to life and Robert joined us and took over management and he was, he was a wine enthusiast and he started picking the eyes out of and, and, and totally built up a completely different wine list to the crap I had on there. Um, and then. A couple of years later, he decided, you know, these wines, the Americans got no idea. So he decided that he wanted to take Australian wine to the US. Nobody had at that stage. Um, So he talked with several of our wine suppliers. Nobody was doing export. (laughs) That hadn't happened yet. Yeah, all um, local, eh? Yeah. Yeah, it was all local sales. So he put together, and our first wineries involved uh, Peter Lehman Wines from the Barossa, and Saxon Vale, who were in receivership at that stage. Um, but anyway, Saxon Vale and a couple of others, and then we had to fill this twenty-foot container up with uh, six hundred cases of West End beer just to put something <laughs> in it because we didn't. You know, it was it was it was couldn't small. fill it with wine. Well, they, it was small potatoes. You know, I think we took about yeah. like fifty cases of this from. We didn't know how he didn't know how it would go. Um, I wasn't involved with it at that stage, so he packed up this container and off he went, and uh, received it at the other end, and that went fairly well. So he came back again about six or eight months later, and said, you know, mate, I can't keep coming back and forth and so on. Do you want to get involved?" And I thought, you know, at that stage I had my investigation business was my main bread and butter. Um, So it wasn't going to involve much of anything. Every now and then do a little bit of paperwork and organise an order and ships up over. So I said, sure. So I I linked up with him and then that partnership went on for, gosh, the 21st anniversary of it, I organised a surprise party for him at the... um, Australian Embassy in Washington DC and we flew out he didn't know it it was happening and we there were people flew in from all over the world we got a a letter of commendation from the Prime Minister Um, (laughs) it was because he had been for 21 years as he would say putting a glass of sunshine in people's hands he'd been just doing the the work and the business was quite successful Um, we were obviously overtaken by the mega companies who came in and did much bigger volume than us. But um, we nonetheless were doing uh, doing very well when the exchange rate was, was good and when Australian wine was, was still the flavor of the month. That changed in the 2000s, uh, the exchange rate changed. And we also started to pay the price for another thing we'd been exporting. Because in the 1990s, we weren't only exporting Australian wine, we were exporting Australian winemakers. And we had gone from when we started in 84, there was only one winemaking school in Australia, Roseworthy College in Adelaide. But by 2000, every university was offering winemaking and viticulture degrees and so on. And so we, we were having, and one of the reasons Australian wine was so successful is that we brought a whole new clean style of wine making. The world, um, for example, the first unwooded Chardonnay came from over your way, Plantagenet Wines. Their Omra yeah. range was the first unwooded Chardonnay, um, yeah. which is now 99% of Chardonnay sold is unwooded. And we introduced um, stainless steel winemaking and fermenting and so on, uh, so that it was clean. And uh, and so we started competing by 2000 and mid-2000s, we're competing with Chile and Argentina and Eastern Europe and South Africa, all of which were using our new technologies and ideas to make Australian-style wine and doing it cheaper. And so in the US market, we we stopped being the flavor of the month and it became harder to do by uh, 2008. I think we decided we'd had enough but it was a hell of a journey. and one thing I can tell you is that and we incre- we had our own wine brand that we introduced for from 2000. so I was involved with wine making of I think five vintages of that. It's called Rafferty's Rules that we uh, uh, was a, a brand we had exclusively for the US. Um, yeah, so it was a
0: yeah <laughs> you get yeah, okay. wow. you get
1: very well entertained in the wine industry. You know, yeah,
0: it would have been a bit of a bit of a change as well, coming from what you'd been doing, something a bit different to mix it up a bit.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, it kind of had flowed from my hospitality and restaurant things, but I I learned a lot about winemaking and wine as the uh, as the journey unfolded. Um, but certainly the uh, the hospitality, particularly when uh, some prominent wine companies were trying to get our attention to represent them in the U.S., we were. We were fated and wined and dined very, very well.
0: Yeah, okay, nice. Yeah, well, that would have been enjoyable. We answered a couple of questions I was going to ask you there about the price point between us and U.S. wines and also the, you know, the fact that it was a different flavour, like, you know, and it's just kind of, I guess, different cultures discovering different regions and then they're a hit for a while and then it's like every company in the world, the only thing that happens when you get to the top is... uh, (laughs) It's all downhill from there. And you kind of were more the entry level, yeah, smaller scale. And then once the big, cause I remember like, I, wine's not really something I'm like kind of massive on, but I probably know more about it than the average person, if that makes sense. And mm-hmm. been lucky enough over the time to even like, i would work for Jack Bendit, um, who not sure if you know who he is, but he used to own the Perth Wildcats and Channel 7 and a lot of property. One of the richest men in the world at one point. And, he owned wineries like as hobbies you know and when I was working for him he would we would talk about wine which was pretty cool and that was right around the time when you said then about the unwooded Chardonnay, because yeah. um, I know I think it was uh, who did you say Plantagen? I think Plantagen- they get, it. I think they get credit right but I got a feeling there was actually smaller wineries because I want to say salatage and Gloucester Ridge right. in Pemberton I think they were the first people that actually Made like yeah, Chardonnay and stainless steel barrels, and I remember yeah when I left there, it was pretty cool because he sort of asked me, oh, what's your favorite wine, and that was what I said at the time. I said, oh, and what a Chardonnay. So yeah, he owned um, Goundries and okay, um, couple other big wineries over here, and he left me a case by the elevator. (laughs) So yeah, um But yeah, so I've always been interested in wine, and it's quite in yeah what you said. So basically, um, it was just like what were the American wines like at the time? Compared to the to the Aussie wines, the fine the good the, the fine American wines are, are um, you know are, are, are excellent
1: and they're fermented dry. One of the problems with the U.S. market, and it's why um, why Yellowtail when they went in, um, you know they, they had a miracle of perfect timing for their brand there. But um, America, for the most part, well most of them don't drink wine. Uh, But a lot of those who do, they they all grew up on a Coca-Cola palate. And so they like a sweeter wine, whereas we tend to ferment, you know, down to very low residual sugar, which is what a dry wine is, is, uh, you know, has low residual sugar. Um, So, so they're different in that regard, but the America is such a huge country. That those that are used to consuming French and German and so on wines, which are fermented more dry, they, um, they, they were ready, ready adopters for us. They got very confused. I remember being at a, a wine event over there once where a apparently hugely wealthy Washington lawyer who knew everything, because of course a Was- <laughs> wealthy Washington lawyer would know everything, refused to believe. That we could release a vintage six months before the french and it's like well we did our best to explain that we do vintage six months earlier
2: yeah,
0: <laughs> in <yeah>. the southern <laughs>
1: hemisphere than you guys do in the northern hemisphere uh we still wouldn't really accept that but anyway oh, that's
0: funny yeah i remember um hearing a cool going off sidetrack on wine stores did you hear about the guy in america that was like um counterfeiting wine Putting fancy labels, making them look one. He was selling them to these like all these collectors upstate New York and shit, and absolutely killing it. There's a, uh, I think it's on Netflix or something. There's a bit of a doco about it, but yeah, I thought that was. It happens every now, the now and then
1: that and, and, it, and it's happened uh, periodically in China over the last few years too that uh, some uh, mm-hmm. fake grange and things like that, um, yeah, hitting hitting the uh, hitting the markets, and it does so, obviously cause concern.
0: Did you do a lot you would have done quite a few trips to the states then, eh?
1: Quite a f- yeah, a, n- a number, but Robert was based there. He 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 was he was there and I was here. And so I would go over maybe once a year, sometimes every yeah, 18 okay. months. Um, Let
0: me ask you these two questions then real quick. Um mm-hmm. best thing about America, worst thing about America. <laughs>
1: The di- the best thing about America is the diversity and the can the can doness, and the worst thing about America is Americans. Um, <laughs> I now, I, in fairness, you probably don't know this. I have dual citizenship. I am a I'm an Australian and American, so I'm allowed okay. to. Is that I'm through your folks or from my dad? Yeah, my dad was yeah. from Kentucky. Oh,
2: okay.
0: And what, so, did he, what did he do, like, was he, kind of like, from, is that farming area, probably, or? Uh, yeah, tobacco. Okay.
1: Yeah, he, he grew up in the deep south. Um, well, Kentucky is deep south. Um, yeah. His dad sort of disappeared when he was nine. So his mum remarried, and then he was only pretty much on his own. He only finished, like, sixth class uh, education because, as happened, there was no supporting parent benefits or anything like that in those days anywhere in the world and so when you know uh, somebody became a widow or or a widower you looked around and and married up uh, again quite quickly and so she married another another man who already had kids and then they he he had a a couple of half-brothers but uh, once once his stepsister approached puberty the best solution was to uh to move old uh, move old tom along a little bit so that because you tried to keep the the boys and girls separated
0: yeah. uh in those days and how did so, he find his way out to australia is that i'm assuming that's where he met your mum
1: well i uh I'll, I'll yeah well you can put a link in the uh in your program notes for this later on the podcast series i did my uh I said, my mum was a was one of the first female lawyers, and she went through university with her uh, her fiance, and women were treated in such contempt by the legal profession who did not want them at all that she had one professor in law school who refused to allow females in his lecture theatres. So, what? Yeah, that's crazy. Um, it was uh, anyway. She got through, and she and her then husband John established their law practice in june 1941 they were married six weeks later they were together for three weeks as a married couple before he went off to war and he never came back so that was that was pretty horrendous for her while she kept the law firm going and when she found out after the war that he wasn't coming home he'd been he died on the tyberma railroad she uh She decided that she just had to do something radically different. She didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. So she decided the war has, the guns had only just fallen silent. The troops hadn't come home yet. And the the United Nations was doing this frantic, um, relief and rehabilitation program throughout destroyed Europe, but also China was in, in absolute ruins. Uh, so she signed up to go and work for a year with the United Nations in China, much to the horror of her parents. I mean, here she is, an attractive 28-year-old young woman yeah. heading heading off <laughs> to bloody yeah. war-torn China full of what every known disease and God knows what else. Um, and she was in uh, and that podcast series that I uh, I did. She yeah,
0: send me a link. I'll put it in the description yeah. for people listening.
1: She wrote letters home from China and... Uh, telling what was going on. I mean, it must have been like being on the bloody moon. It was, and anyway, I it, yeah, it transcribed wow. during during COVID times that I came across her letters. I was given this box of treasures and it contained all of her letters home from China. And I decided to record them. Um yeah, awesome. And release them 75 years to the day that they were written because that just happened to be how the timing worked out. Wow, and I love so, that sort of
0: stuff. Yeah, I'm going to have to have a look for sure. Yeah, so there were
1: 58, I think it's 58 episodes or something of these letters of a very different China in 1946.
0: Oh, yeah, I bet. So, anyway, yeah, that's where yeah. she met
1: my dad. Mm, okay. Because he was working yeah. with the United Nations too. <laughs> go, on, she,
0: go on quickly back to America before I forget. um You said the best thing they can do attitude. That's something when I ask people that question, because I ask it a lot about America. It's something that comes up, like, you know, repetitively. And I've got a couple of mates, like, that have been over there. I've got a mate who I'll be having on here, Sprague. And we sort of, like, known each other a long time. And he went over to America and did the whole professional BMX thing and all that. And I asked him the same question. And he said the same thing. He's like, think about Americans, man. They just, like, they they can do. And it's one thing about Australians is, like, they're really kind of, like, tall poppy syndrome, blah, blah. Knock you down. So I've always wondered people's opinions on that. What do you think? Is that is that just culturally? Is it where we come from, or what do you think?
1: Yeah, it is cultural. I mean, that's one of the things when I, you know, if I go to the states, because I'm a shocker, I pick up the accent. I've been there twelve hours and I'm starting to bloody talk (laughs) like an American. Whereas my partner Robert has been there for thirty five years. And other than the fact that he uses American words, like you talk about the trunk of the car instead of the boot and things like that. But other yeah. than that, he's uses a broad Geelong accent as the day he went over. um, Yeah, I I spend 10 minutes there and you t- you're talking away at him and suddenly realise, you don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> We're talking a different language. It's like, it's similar but different.
0: Yeah. Um, but there's so much more can do. They seem to be like if you know someone's going to do something, it's like they get behind them and like, yeah, good on you, mate. Have a go. What can I do to to help? You know, where Australia seems to be a bit more. Yeah, tall poppy.
1: Yeah. I don't know what that that is. I I guess it comes from, we had a cultural cringe for so long. We we felt that we were the, you know, the colonial inadequate, uh, you know, I'm I'm generalizing here. I'm painting a broad brush, of course. But we did have a, we did have a, you know, everything when I was growing up, American music was better. American everything was better. Yeah. Now, if we'd gone 40 years earlier, it would have been everything from British was better. It was World War Two was when we suddenly embraced America. Before that, it was all the, all, all the old country. Um, yeah. Which actually caused issues in my mum's family because she goes off to China, which, A, caused an issue. But she came back with... Uh, a fellow named an American named Hank Henry. Now, my f- grandfather, her, her dad, detested Americans, he was an absolute <laughs> Anglophile. He detested Americans, he hated the name Henry. He was born Frederick William Henry Turton, and he changed his name by deed poll to get rid of the Henry.
0: Wow, he didn't. So, like
1: it. so when she turns up from China with a
0: Yank uh, Henry
1: named Henry
0: yeah
1: it got a pretty frosty they got a frosty reception such that they married in sydney and then they buggered off to tasmania straight away to get as far away from the family as they could
0: okay tassie, yeah. and so where did you say oh you were born in
1: i was North born in sydney. in sydney
0: yeah okay yeah.
1: but my two eldest brothers were born in tassie the old man in hobart, or? In hobart yeah. yeah and uh he got recalled into the Army, the US Army, because he was, I guess, on an act, a reserve list or something with when the oh, Korean yeah. War broke out. So they packed up and headed back to the States. And then when he had an induction medical, they found out he had advanced tuberculosis. And uh, so he lost sort of half of one lung and a quarter of another, um, which hit him pretty hard because he had been, before he went to China and before the war changed his, uh, changed his life, he was getting by as a nightclub singer. And he had a voice very oh, much really? in the style of Bing Crosby. He was a crooner. Right. And I do remember that as a little kid that, you know, I'd sit on his knee and he'd, he'd, you know, he'd sing me a song, but he could only have a single one verse before he ran out of puff.
0: Yeah, okay. Yeah, affected his lungs. Yeah, it's mm. shit like that. That's a bit of a mixed bag, American, giant. Yeah, yeah. Like always, this is why I love talking to people because like, you couldn't make this stuff up. <laughs> no, it's extraordinary... In
1: fact, I'm writing... Well, I'm writing part partway through the biographical work of my mother because her story, and I'm looking at the wall here, I, my inspiration for it is a poster of Gone with the Wind because, you know, hers was a story of two profound love stories set against a background of a world at war, yeah. growing up through depression and all that, and fighting the way through to... And she never wanted to go back to the law but when the old man got drummed out of the military, they had to do something. So her dad, who was a conveyancer in Sydney, said, well, come on back and, and, and let's fire it up again. And so she came back and went back into the law as a, in partnership with him. Now, as a kid, I didn't understand any of all of this. And, and she died way too young. She, she died 10 days before my 21st birthday. And when I was still a completely self insorbed bloody ratbag, Um, uh, and it's only in more recent years I thought, wow, you know, the things that I bitched about, like, the things I bitched about okay, everybody else's kid, mum, comes to tuck shop and they get, you know, they get a little bit of extra lollies or a bag of chips or something my mum never does and I, I, you know, I didn't understand that but of course she's at work (laughs) so she was was the
0: breadwinner It's kind of just part of it, look, my old man died when I was about 19 as well and it's i got similar thoughts you know i was like because people ask me oh what's the one thing you wish for i say a, a conversation as an mm-hmm. adult <laughs> because mm-hmm. 18 or 19 year old all right like Fuck, and he was just an idiot really you know what i mean yep um so yeah it's just one of those things and now and i don't know what you found but i found through life it is it's funny because it's not until it happens to you obviously that you realize it but um for example, like, you know, Father's Day supposed to be like a happy day. You know, Mother's Day, it's not, yeah, you know, and you see a lot of people like celebrating it and it's not necessarily like a happy kind of memories when you lose a parent young. It's one of the things, one of the real shames things in life that you can be robbed of, I reckon, is early death from a parent.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, I... It is what it is. Kids get cancer, it, man, and die, so, you know. Fuck
1: it is Uh, but but the other side of that that coin is that i'm really blessed and lucky well i've got a wife we've been married about 31 years or something and 32 and still talking to each other and enjoy talking to each other and she still has both of her parents kicking you know they're getting right on again now but um, that's cool they're still active and she still has them and there's a part of me that's really really chuffed about that yeah for sure it won't won't be nice when they go but it it's great that. She's got to have that full experience of, of them.
0: It's probably honestly, I reckon the one thing you could ask for in life.
2: <laughs> mm.
0: You know, if you could just ask for one thing, I reckon it's just to be able to enjoy it, yeah. As long as yeah. possible with the people that you love, kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, so a couple of other things I wanted to touch on then, because um, I know well you, at the start you also mentioned uh, aerobatics, mm. and in the in the um the bio thing that I kind of read out you have mentioned there that you um that you used to fly or that you've been flying for a while and 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 sailing as well so um cuz obviously there's a fair bit involved in getting a um pilot's license can you yeah, I'll be interested. Yeah, a well, bit about that.
1: <laughs> probably my when the insurance business was going really well and the wine business because they were all bubbling along together. I had all these things going and they were all going okay. I was never a millionaire, but you know, I was doing just fine. Doing thank all you very right. much. Yeah. Yeah, I was doing all right. I was happy. Um, And I decided to buy Microsoft Flight Simulator. Oh,
0: I man. still remember.
1: This is in Got 1995 in. or something like that. I well, remember
0: I, that version. Yeah, yeah. I played that.
1: And I put it on it and I fired it up and the plane starts from memory. It's a little Cessna 172 or something. Oh, and it's, man, you're sitting so on the airstrip at Meg's Field in Chicago. Yeah, That's where it starts. And so I tootled it and I played with that for probably about 10 minutes. And I said, you know, was we've got a <laughs> lovely little airport not far from here, just up the road. Why don't I go? And I thought about this for about 24 hours or 24 seconds but I said to Jules I said I reckon I'm going to learn to fly and the reason I'm going to learn to fly is that because at that stage my biggest insurance client was uh, GIO insurance doing household claims and I did all of their major loss claims from the Hawkesbury River north to the Queensland border and out to the South Australian border so I had all of that area and typically you know it's a a fire at Moree or something like that. I get a call on them in the morning. and fax through the paperwork. Remember we had fax machines. And uh, and then by the time I would get out there, I'd organize, you know, pack up and go, I'll, I'll see them the next morning. And I thought I could really do a value add here. If I got a pilot's license, I could be out there in a couple of hours. And yeah. I did the I did the math on it it's cheaper for that because in those days the insurer didn't mind paying they'd pay me the same rate per hour traveling as when I was on the job so it was a long drive out to Moray.
0: Yeah. and they'd
1: pay me x you know cents per kilometer or whatever it was so i did the sums on it. i thought you know not only would this be fun it had saved them a little bit of money and uh, uh, so I decided i went up to Warnervale and i decided to learn to fly and I, i'm a little Man, it's, I'm a bit obsessive with things. Once you decide I'm going to do it, that's that it. That is how so do do cool.
0: It? I can't believe that's your story. You, you got Microsoft Flight Simulator. Yep. And then just went and got your pilot license.
1: Yeah, I never touched simula- the Microsoft Simulator again. Mate, and, that's uh, awesome. Oh, uh, one, uh, once, once I'd got my license and then my unrestricted so I could navigate around the place. And So you know, how long does later. that take? Oh, it didn't take all that long. Um... I think I it was like
0: it was a long process. but
1: Well, I was going up twice a week, to, you know. Yeah, okay. and so you get your hours up. up. I was getting my hours up. I think I soloed at 10 hours or something. And I think I, at about 35 okay. hours, I was fully, I, I ticked all the boxes. I could fly anywhere. Okay, um, That's
0: not too bad, 35. No, no. It, yeah, it, you can soon rack that up, yeah.
1: And I was claiming it all as a tax deduction because yeah. as far as I was concerned, that was fair enough. Yeah, well, hey, um, is using it, man.
0: I remember hearing Paul Morris say one of the best things he ever did for his business was like buy a helicopter because he's doing that kind of stuff as well, flying around. He's just like pff. people say they're expensive. He was like, no, I'll show you actually how it saves you money, mm. <laughs> especially if you got that right kind of business. Yeah, so, it was yeah, it was perfect yeah, so. for
1: that. And then I started. Then I decided I would get a multi-engine rating because my family's in Tassie. Well, Jules's family's in Tassie and even uh-huh. though there is, you can fly single, and people fly back and forth single engine all the time, this was as little nervous guts go, I ain't flying across bass straight on
0: one engine. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. <laughs> so i
1: got a multi-engine. If one cuts out, rating. you still got yeah, the other one. That's it. Um, so I did that and then I thought, you know, and to be a better pilot, I really would like to get advanced piloting skills, so that's when I did my aerobatic ratings and and i would quite often slip up of a wednesday afternoon over over tugra lake just near here spectacular beaches and everything else you go up there 3000 feet and then just spend an hour pulling loops and rolls and spins and stalls and
0: just That's awesome just fun
1: yeah
0: wow um, but That's then, a bit then like when racing the cars
1: yeah oh it is it is it's uh it's very thrilling it's very on the edge it's uh it gets you very in, very engaged so yeah, you so still I did fly that. much these days? Or? No, I haven't flown for 20-odd years. When I couldn't fly oh, at okay, least once yeah. a week, I decided... Um,
0: yeah, I would, <laughs> you got to be doing you know, it all the time.
1: Yeah, for me, I, now the rules don't say that. The rules from memory, you had to do at least three takeoffs and landings every three months or something to oh, stay calm. Oh, yeah, go. minimum, yeah. But, but, you know, to me, that's... Ooh, I don't trust myself with
0: <laughs> you know, it's one of those things. Always, I always thought it was harder for some reason, but um, it's one of those things I kind of would have liked to have done. And yeah, well, you know, Matty, he's a pilot yep. for um, Virgin. I should get him him on here one day because that kind of stuff fascinates me. And the, have you got the new simulator, the new version? No, no.
1: I, I, man, don't,
0: don't go. All I can say is don't look because fuck. I like. I've had a look a couple of times. I can't believe I haven't actually bought it by now because. You know but i've got a couple of other games that i play and i just i try to keep it you know i literally only have really two things i spend a bit of time on but it's like i don't need another thing <laughs> you know what i mean right. i'm already like too busy maybe like when i got some time off in winter or something but yeah oh that's funny and then yeah okay oh,
1: that's oh, yeah, interesting I, I, i'm funny with gaming i I've yeah, I, I've never done it, and I'm that I'm that bit older than you. You're like I can hear my I can't hear my mother saying this, but I can hear my grandmother saying this. It's time to bloody grow up and stop playing games, Warren. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but because...
0: you would have seen the start of games. Like how were, how old were you in? Because um, Pong was like mid seventies, late seventies, I think.
1: Yeah. Well, I was already sort of. So how old were you? Then? you know, well, twenty five twenty i was I was just beyond the gaming age, really. I was aware of it, but yeah. it, it wasn't me. and the interesting thing is I consider the sim I don't consider the sim gaming, and then when people I've, I'm used to it now, I'm willing to tell him, yeah, yeah, I'm a gamer, but i racing is the only one I do, and I yeah, you know yeah. and I don't think of it as a game. I think of it
0: as a sim. It's a sim, yeah, I try to say the same thing to explain it to people. Yeah, yeah, oh, I find that interesting because you don't really kind of fit the bill in a lot of ways. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> but, well, there's heaps of old guys on there, don't get me wrong, but, yeah, it's not typical, that's all. It's mostly younger guys, I think, up to... The, you can go and look at the demographics and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, to see, but I think it's mostly... Yeah, mostly kind of younger guys sort of thing. So, yeah, so... um. Um, trying to, I should get the oh, now that's the other thing I did want to talk to you about is um, um, your book. So, um, obviously, that I was reading the bio about. So, you, you actually wrote a book before this one as well, I realized. And that's um, is that like the about ar- ancestry, that kind of yeah, stuff? Yeah, the Ark right? in your
1: pocket. It, it basically grew out of when I was producing videos, music videos. Um, we were. Because I did that for a couple of years as well, produced, I think, 48 uh, music videos or co-produced with a fellow called Duncan Toombs, picked up Golden Guitars. Um, Some of the people you've heard of, Casey Chambers, um, John Williamson, Troy Cassadale, a bunch of people you never heard of. So I was doing that for a while. And while we were filmmaking, I was having dinner with um, some friends who were going through time to sell the house and downsize. Kids have all left. And I thought you know, this home's got so many stories. I had this idea of um, coming in with a film crew and basically doing a really short video to capture the essence of the story of their family in this home for that period of time. And uh, so we did that and sort of formulated it as a music video. They picked the piece of music and it was great and they loved it. And I came up with this idea of, well, how, I started to then explore, how are you going to get this to future generations? And so... I went down a whole deep dive into how humans have told their stories and how do we get our stories to persevere into the future. Um, and I found out, well, it's through two things. Things, which is mementos or whatever, but they don't last. And uh, and and storytelling. Um, but we don't spend time together in families anymore. So I came up with this idea of, how to collate a digital legacy and then how to give it the best chance of making it to future generations. As I say to people, if you had two kids and they each have two kids, then in 16 generations, which sounds a long time, it's not really 600 years, you will have alive at that time, 244,100 and something or other grandchildren.
0: Yeah, it's a lot.
1: It's lots. And it'd be nice if some of them could have a bit of a story of you know, their backstory. So anyway, isn't it the,
0: isn't it the one thing that mainly fascinates people, really, where they come from? Like, yeah, yeah, I was curious about that because um, well, my wife does the Ancestry stuff. She's been doing it, like, interestingly enough, since she was, left high school, her and a friend, they used to go to the State Library here and, because that was the only place where yep. a lot of those records and they used to chip away, chip away and then all of a sudden, you know, along came the internet and then obviously, you know, like Ancestry.com and man, they're kind of, you know, like the first 10 years, 15, 20 years or whatever they did, they got a bit done, but not a lot. And then when the internet came along, it was just like crazy, like what they could like trace back. And actually I won't go into it all now because I've got a mate who's like a medieval guy. One of my best mates used to be um, like the president or well, actually the king of the WA medieval society. Right. So I'm going to go into it on that podcast soon for those listening. But yeah, interestingly enough, <laughs> Oh, um, I'll, I'll send you a copy of that book too. Yeah, yeah, I, I got a funny story to tell, real quick. But I was going to say, yeah, I would be interested to read it because those girls, right? Like, um, you know, not not everybody. You know, you go looking at the ancestry. Let's be honest, right? There's a little piece of all of us that hopes that we were like, you know, um, related to someone famous, you know. Yep. So they've been, you know, they were looking, and then and the interesting thing about it is that they found out that they're not really related to anybody. Particularly, <laughs> but I am, <laughs> right. and they were kind of like, Oh my god, of course he is, sort of thing. So, yeah, I'm gonna, I've got names and dates, and but interestingly enough, some of the most, um, yeah, famous roars, long story short, um, so directly re- related to royal family back from about 10th or 12th century, and then that's when our family kind of like broke away, sort of thing. So, the thing is, you kind of think, Oh, yeah, it's cool and it's rare, but then, like, what you said. You start punching the numbers and you realize oh man there's like probably like millions of people like on the earth that are related to the same people because it was like so long ago but yeah it's it's the one thing i reckon as humans and it was it was funny because i don't know I, I don't know like i got no evidence really but there was certain things that like there's certain things i've always kind of been fascinated about and you always wonder why like english castles i just kind of like always had this weird thing about them and they used to draw them when I was a kid and build them and models and then like yeah, you start finding out where you come from and it's like oh well, you realize your relatives like lived in them like you know a couple mm-hmm. hundred years ago so yeah it's interesting to work out where you come from so yeah anyway we'll leave that there because we're skipping to the um yeah book so yeah basically I literally finished reading it today because I think I said before I got through most of it and then like the last few weeks been busy coming up to Christmas so I've been chipping away so today I thought <laughs> I'm talking to you I better get my shit together and finish it so yeah man honestly not blowing smoke it's a really good book man it's um, yeah and look I won't give it because there's a bit of a spoiler in there which we, we won't give away um, but to recap so I'll tell people it's called Fat is the New Muesli I'll put a picture of it and a link in the description so you can look it up how i lost 16 kilos in just eight weeks effortlessly and got a holiday in sardinia so yeah basically um it's kind of like a bit of a weight loss book but what i like about it is um and i'm just going to like skip through some of the chapter headings really quick for people because um, i would highly recommend this book for anybody who, who was um you know reached middle age and was carrying a few extra kilos like me and all of us and um, so you sort of talk about, um, yeah, in the, you know, the start, what you, um, the reasons, those reasons I just said, getting fat, looking after ourselves. And then what I like about it is you get into the mind games, you know, mastery made easy, small things. Um, and then, you know, um, the consciousness, you know, the holiday, the planning, um, you know, journey to the center of your psyche. Uh, calories and health planning and preparation, reading, measuring up, um, and then you go into the actual. Like it's really cool because you've got the actual um, exact recipes and all that at the back, and and you sort of go through it all. And what I like about it is it's like, man, there's a lot of diet books out there, and some of them are paleo and you know, kinetics and Atkins and all this kind of stuff, even CSIRO. But I never really read one before that I reckon kind of just comes at it from a pure, just numbers, science point, point of view. And that's what I really like about this. And that's kind of, I got taught, I did rehab last year and I was lucky enough to get chosen for another program. And a lot of the, what you've got in here is very similar. And that was done by scientists, you know, um, in the university. And there's a couple of really cool things I like about it too. Um, the fact that you've left space in the book for people to write stuff down. Mm-hmm. Because one thing I've discovered over life, and I don't know what you think, but it's something, there's something to do with the human brain, right? And numbers and letters, And like, it's just simple science. Um, pretty sure it was University of New South Wales did a paper on it. If you write shit down, you're like 70% um, better chance of actually achieving it than you, if you just tell yourself you're going to do it. So, yeah, I like that, that you've got that in there. And then you've got all the numbers, like, at the back as well, you know, how many, you know, stuffs, calories, and, you know, and really, I mean, you're doing a bit of exercise, walking mainly. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but Yeah, yeah, mostly, I didn't, um, start
1: out, didn't start out that way. I, no, I no, dropped... she so
0: didn't, obviously. But I like the fact that it's not really, like, you're not going to the gym, you know, you're not doing, like, a lot of kind of hardcore stuff because that is a lot of like, you know, what catches, you know, a lot of people up. So, yeah, yeah. Um, man I really liked it and I'm definitely going to be given the um and look I I want you it sort of answered two things but I want to ask you about the book generally how did that come about how did you get into all that and just decide one day I'm going to write a book and then other thing is with the diet like um we won't give away all the recipes because they're in there but um I noticed there's kind of like a few things you could probably say like I noticed there's not a lot of pasta in there there's not a lot of bread and there's not a lot of sugar, is that right? So that's actually two questions there. But yeah, if you want to sort of you know, let, yeah explain to me a bit bit about the book, how all that sort of came about and what yeah. the motivation was.
1: Well, I guess from the outset, you know, I I did have a a, a, a bit of a health scare, um, but that wouldn't normally be enough to to drive me to do things. I I had to make it fun. And so the book is all, firstly, it's just what I did. And I know that it's worked for some people. It hasn't worked for some others. It's,
0: but 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 that's what I like about it. I I like the fact that you kind of did something different because I think that's part of the problem. Like everybody's just trying to kind of do the same shit all the time where you need some, you need some other kind of angle to come at it, you know?
1: Well, it's about, other people talk about finding motivation, um, yes. but to me, finding the motivation was coming up with games, tricks, self-deception, humour. I was going back to some of my previous understandings and studying of how I think about mind and so on. And as, as you know, I've, these days for my sins, I'll, I teach meditation. So I've been fascinated with mind for yeah, a very, that. very long time. Um, Particularly my mind. That's what I like about it. Because
0: that, look, the diet, and that's all part, that's the actual, the nuts and bolts of it. But, you know, most people don't even get to that point. Because they don't have all that other mind stuff. And that's what I think you've done such a good job of in the book.
1: Oh, cool. Well, I'm glad you uh, glad you enjoy it. Uh, yeah, I've yeah, enjoyed no, it's it, And Honestly, it has. It, it's benefited some people. I had a lot of fun writing it. And as I say in the book, I actually had fun... Doing the diet, the main thing that for me was the realization, and and the science knowledge doesn't come from me. I'm not a dietitian. Was that book Mosley that leapt out at me at that horrible display that I went to called the health section, of i I've never been to one of them, and I was overwhelmed. But there yeah. were two things about his book: low blood sugar, that this what is it eight week low blood sugar diet it was called, and the, yeah. the title leapt out at me because the doctor said I had to cut blood sugar. And that was carbs and sugars and things like that. And eight weeks. And that really was the thing that got me. If I can do, I can do anything for eight weeks. You know, I work in a high school just a couple of days a week. You know, that's not even a school term. They're 10 weeks yeah, long. Yeah. I, 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 can, I can make a commitment to myself for eight weeks. I'm making no promises after that at all. And the thing that I could never have foreseen, it's like when you're standing at the bottom of the mountain, you can't even imagine what the view's like from the top. Yeah. Because uh, was that after that eight weeks, I was a different person.
0: Yeah, I knew you You know, my depression,
1: and I, and I list all of the things, like I, the it's clinical the old, depression like, had gone. All, all these things had gone.
0: There's a lot of science to say how many days it takes, and there's varying, but, you know, anything between 30 or 60 days, if you can keep it up, Yep. You're gonna change a new habit and you're gonna make a new habit. And it's it's initially the first step. That's the hardest step. And that's what I like about your book, that's the way it's approached it. It's approached it in a different way. You know, because I just want sort to of say to other people as well, you know, when they ask me like how I've sort of done it, I mean, I went through rehab, so I was lucky that I had access to scientists and football trainers through a government programme for like and three. People months. people
1: keep and people keeping you on track.
0: Yeah, that's right. And yeah, you had but to it was to... it, the hardest bit is actually the motivation bit, you know, and like, even like this year. So, uh, you know, I was reasonably good, but slowly started creeping up over winter. Um, and then like as soon as karting season finished, cause I, you kind of, that's the other thing, reason why I cut cause it keeps me to kind of what I call race weight. <laughs> yep. And then as soon as I start racing, man, and like, look, I don't really go mad or anything, but there's no doubt about it. And it's mainly for me, one thing I really learned reading your, um, diet and your list at the back there. And it really did reaffirm for me probably the three things I eat too much of the most, um, pasta, bread, and the sugar thing. Like I don't actually eat a lot of sugar, right? But I like tea, right. and I could eat I could have like five or six teas every day. And if you have one or two sugars, like you add that up, it's like, fuck, like that's a fair bit of sugar. So I'm just going back to black tea kind of thing. And um, but yeah, I'm going to give I'm definitely going to actually use your plan to. Because um, a lot of the stuff too, you know, it's like it wasn't that far off, you know, sort of what I was eating. Like I said, it's just cutting down on the carbs and, and, and that sort of stuff. And they're actually yeah. like really good looking, like your bunless burger that you've got in there. I love that because I do something <laughs> kind of similar. I was like, I started realizing, and I think it was because my physio, was someone said to me, like, you just don't need the bread. I was like, "What do you mean?" They go, "Well, oh, you just don't need it. Just make it without it and try it." And I was like, "Oh shit!" And then I tried it one night and I realized, "Oh yeah, it's actually, it's actually pretty good." And then, the main thing too, which I really took from your book and also which I learned in rehab, is the the whole process of write it down. Which, as I said, not just your goals, but like keep calories. I keep count, so I would calorie count. So if I had breakfast, I'd work out what it was, right? And I would just put in my phone, like on Notepad. You know, the numbers, I'll just make shit up. But let's just say you put in 250, right? And then at lunchtime, you have something else you put in, you know, 100, 200. And I noticed you were kind of sticking to sort of about 800 a day. And That was my I goal. Was, that was my eight weeks. I was actually was a bit higher than that. Yeah, I think for eight weeks, like, that, that's probably doable. I was actually doing like 1,000, even 1,200 days. And I was still losing weight on those yep. days as well. Yeah. Sometimes. Well, I think so, anything, yeah,
1: for most people, anything below about... And I've, to be honest, I wrote this book a long time ago. I'm just coming up for five years now, and I'm still down. Well, today I'm a bit fat. I'm down 23 kilos, whereas I'm, uh, but I'm I'm constantly down between 24 and a half and 22 and a half. That's the range from where I started. It
0: takes a long time, man. It takes a long time.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, don't do that overnight. Well, it took me eight weeks. I was down whatever it was, 16, and then another 12, by, the, by 12, 13 weeks off the top of my head, I was down because I had found it. So I was so thrilled with where I was at the end of that eight weeks. I'm going to keep going. Yeah,
0: because it gets I, when you start seeing good numbers.
1: I was getting good numbers. I really want to lose another five or eight, whatever it was. So I'm down at um, uh, 70, 77.5, down from 101. And, and that's where, but I've been down steadily at that now for four years, four and a half, yeah, over, nearly coming up for five years yeah. and it doesn't move much. But I still do write down every day. I don't write calories down anymore, but I every day I get up, jump on the scales, I do my blood pressure because it happened to have a machine and I write, if I go for a walk, how many, you know, just a bit of info off my yeah. app. And it, yeah. it's a discipline that takes me, what, three or four minutes of a morning? And it keeps yeah. me on track. I don't have to yeah, think about habit. it. It's habit. Yeah, yeah get it habit. Get just... it unconscious. So you don't have to think about it.
0: Yeah, that's it. And, um, and I eat pizza. To... I still
1: <laughs> eat pizza. I had pizza well, actually... the other night. And I still, I just don't eat as much as I used to.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was just about to say that. That's exactly the same as me. Since I did rehab, there's a few things I cut out. But generally, like, because what happens is what you were saying about the measuring. And what I find is, over time, you just get to know. Like I can tell you, right, like one serve of nachos, right, it's about 13 chips. So instead of putting out like a big massive plate, three or four deep, (laughs) because I measured them at the start and I started weighing and then after you've weighed them 10 times, you realize I don't need to weigh it anymore. You know, so you get to know, you just sort of get to know like the rough numbers. And the trick of
1: using a smaller plate.
0: Yeah, that too. And that's, and I haven't changed what I eat too much, to be honest. I have a bit... Mm -hmm let's say 20, 30%, but it's more just um, two things, measuring it and cutting down the, yeah, the portion size. So like even with pasta, you know, so, and even with curries, what I, so what I've been starting to do with that, because I like my curries and pasta. So I've been making like um, riceless curries. Right. So just don't put the rice in. And instead yep. of the rice, like I'll put a bunch of frozen veggies in. You get the, the Asian frozen yep. veg. Yep in the supermarket and i'll just like chuck them in. so it's like no rice and and no pasta and i don't do that all the time but i'm just trying to slowly because that's the other thing i'll tell people too like don't be too harsh on yourself in the first two or three years (laughs) because i literally reckon it literally takes that long Mm. oh and um yeah i'll I'll ask you about the book real quick so how did you just wake up one day (laughs) and decide that you just thought you would write a book about all this how did that come about
1: I guess I was—I suppose I was talking to people, some people because people would notice I was—I'd lost my weight because uh, I had finished the uh, that part of the program, the initial program. Um, maybe someone said you should—I don't know. somebody should, I, I, I to be honest, I don't know. I mean, I had written—I had, ri- had written a book before, so it wasn't my first. Oh,
0: okay, book. yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't your first book,
1: yeah. Yeah, so I'm now an author. You see, my Not first, your first book was, radio, yeah. No, um. How long did and it was take and it was approach? interesting, and I and I wanted to. I wanted to get clear in my head because a lot of the things I talk about, the tricks and the games and the because there's lots of, in fact, my one of the themes of the book is small things done consistently at the right times and places create major results, and so oh, I wanted man. to capture well. What were all these small things I did, yeah. and what are the right times? What do I mean by the right times? You know, and so. Once I started to write it, I kind of enjoyed it. And as you'll notice, I've got lots of funny little cartoons and snippets yeah. and pop-outs and, all the you know, side it's, stuff. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's all a bit of an
0: adventure. It's all fun. Honestly, man, like I said, it's really well done. And it's kind of like, I feel like it's layman's terms too, you know, but still with a, with a scientific kind of side to it. And look, you know, you don't make excuses either at some points, you know, that chapter or a bit about, yes, it's hard, you know, but... It's really about making the start, and you've got the tricks in there to explain that. So, yeah, well, so we're getting close to probably two hours, so we probably should start wrapping it up. But one of the things I did um, want to ask you about as well, so when I first met you um, in Discord and race control, one of the things that you sort of said to me that kind of intrigued me was you dropped the fact that, because I always ask people, oh, you know, what do you do? G'day, mate, how you going? What do you do? And you said, oh, you teach um, meditation at the moment in a high school. And... (laughs) <laughs> They're 15 minute classes and i was like what the fuck 15 minutes like in a high school like high school kids 15 minutes like those things shouldn't really go together in a sentence so yeah i'm keen to know a little bit more man about how you got into that and what's a 15 minute um, what's a 15 minute meditation ther- therapy like? meditation <laughs> session look like for high school kids yeah
1: yeah um Well, I I first got into meditation. My father got me into it when I was way off the rails, many 30 or something years ago. Uh, And it was sort of through, as it was in those days, more of a spiritual, religious type, contemplative practice type thing.
0: Yeah, yeah, rather than the mindfulness. Rather than
1: mindfulness and and all of that. But over time, um, I have become far more interested in short, and, and I'm interested in just this process of mind works. Uh, and I did a thing called NLP Neuro Linguistic Programming that has mixed reputation depending on who you talk to, but been a wonderful thing that I did. And it has enhanced my, uh, my understanding of, of how we shift states of consciousness and so on. And to my view, short form meditation is very similar. Oh, actually, I'll tell the truth. It's identical to self-hypnosis. And I started out with hypnosis okay. when I was 15. And I heard somebody say recent, oh, a while ago, someone was asking a question, well, what's the difference between self-hypnosis and meditation? And somebody said, well, it's the purpose. And I thought about that for a long time. Nah, there's no difference. It's really creating a different, altered, focused, useful state, shifting from a noisy, clatter, chatterbox state to one that is more useful. And meditation is the skill of just being able to quietly focus on something. So meditation usually has a focal point, it could be a mantra, could be looking at a candle, could be looking at a spot on the wall, could be focusing on your breathing. There are so many different schools of meditation that ultimately are still about getting to this calm, focused, present state. Mindfulness is, is the ability to bring that state of being present to whatever you're doing in any point in time. Uh, somebody was, I had a kid, teenager arguing with me that long ago and they said, Well, I can't meditate, I can't be mindful, I'm really angry. And I said, Okay, well, we can be mindful, angry. You know. Well, how can you be mindful, angry? I said, Well, because there are two elements to, to the anger. One is whatever it was that made you angry. Somebody said something to something happened five minutes ago, five years ago, whatever. That's like the content, that's the story that is not present because it happened back then. So which part of it is present here now? Well, my jaw's tight and my fists are clenched and I'm feeling and there's noise in my head. So good. Let's just observe those things without the story. And it's amazing how quickly when we simply observe the clenched jaw, the tight shoulders, the whatever, and just be present with what's going on right now because the story isn't present. And this applies to people who are anxious too because that relates to future events. No depression, anxiety really relates to the past. Anxiety is about the future. Well, and sometimes it's really confusing. Well, what if what happened in the past happens again? Yeah. Okay, but neither of those things are now, and no. now is the only time we'll ever be alive. It's the only time we ever have. So anyway, that's kind of the background to my. Mm. And then when I was asked to introduce this in, in school. I love the idea of short form. I only have 15 minutes. By the time they come in, settle down, there's five to seven minutes. I maybe have eight minutes to get them quiet and present. But again, it's about habit. I've been doing it with these kids for a long time. Um, I have my group for guided meditation. We have another option for those who don't want to be part of that, that they go off and do mindful colouring. Yep. So they're in another room, but it's quiet. There's a bit of music on. They can't talk. They can just do little, you know, Mandela's or whatever they're called or colouring in. And we have another group because, of course, we're a special purpose high school and we do have some kids who are <laughs> the lively lads. Okay. I was going they, or... they can't sit still at all. Yeah. And I certainly don't want them in my room. But we have for them a program of mindful movement.
2: Yeah, where okay, the teacher
1: takes them out <laughs> out of sight of everybody else and, and pushes them through because they need to move their bodies. You know, yeah. There'd be star jumps, push And these kids love it, by the way. They love to move. So to me, you ask me to do star jumps and push-ups, that's punishment of the worst order. Yeah,
0: but yeah. for them, Horses it's the perfect.
1: And again, the, the focus is on being aware of what's going on in their body as they're doing these things. So I have my short-form meditation. I've trained them and it's that uh, I have th- three breaths is my induction to a meditation. The first breath is about a slow, because normally we don't breathe slow and comfortably anyway. We, yep. you know, breathe shallow and all that. Yeah, fine, so three slow, three slow, comfortable, deep breaths. The first one is about giving yourself permission to take a couple of minutes off. Because yep. typically if you say to somebody, oh, I want you to be still for a little while and meditate, the first thing they bring, I'm not going to do that right. There's all this clatter starts instantly for a lot of people. But if you can set boundaries, it's like my eight-week diet. I can do something for eight weeks. If I say to them, "Give yourself permission to pause for a few minutes," oh, okay, so it's not forever. You know, a lot yeah. of that noise instantly stops because we put a, a little fence around this this little bit of time. Yeah, the second breath is simply about, once they've given themselves permission, is to begin the process of allowing the distractions, the demands, the noise of the world to just fade into the distance. Just like when you go going to sleep or when you get engrossed in a game or something, it's all still there, you're choosing just to pause. And then when you're ready, take a third sleep, a slow, comfortable, deep breath, and simply relax. And they've been doing this for a while now. And I can come up with so many metaphors with this idea of three slow, comfortable, deep breaths and then just pause for as long as you get. Then you can focus on your breathing. Sometimes I guide them on a bit of a guided journey or whatever. But those three breaths done repeatedly become a habit. And they can shift their state of mind from whatever noisy one to a different one.
0: Sounds like a feng shui technique because they teach a technique like that with three stages. Yeah, yeah I I, I don't
1: claim proprietary. I don't you know claim it. It's just what I do because feng I only have works. ten minutes, yeah. and Man. it works really well for them. The teachers all. I was just going to um, ask
0: that. Do they what sort of benefit? There's so much done unpack there. I'm going to go back to what you said, but yeah. For now, what do you, um, yeah? What are the main benefits that the kids find out of it? What do they say? Oh, they, <laughs> they just love it. It it it. They're
1: so the world is so demanding, particularly on teenagers these days. Their devices and everything else, and peer pressures, and it's just the to be able,
0: louder than it's ever been.
1: Yeah, to be able to simply pause, and as I point out to them, this is a skill you you don't need me for this. You can do this anytime, anywhere. If you want to watch somebody out on a date and you feel like your guts are about to throw up take a couple of slow deep breaths and just yeah. bring yourself back to your center or you're applying for a job or I do it a lot with them just prior to exams where, cause kids get themselves all worked up and yeah. it's like, just take a couple of deep breaths and find your center, calm down. And uh, yeah, so it, it, it works really well for them and you know, they seem uh-huh. to like it and well, they oh, keep it's... asking me to do it. I've been doing it six years now. So,
0: yeah I'm so glad to hear that there's places out there doing that. so I want to go back and unpack a bit of that. Um, so going back to your dad, right? Where did he get it from? because he said he taught you meditation. he Is was that something ser- he picked up in China or
1: no no, no he was searching. In fact my parents back when I was because I'm the youngest, so my siblings had left home by the time I was sort of doing high school and being a, an asshole. <laughs> um, but my parent, mum and dad were both searching for more. And I remember they were members of the Sydney psychic society or something like that. They used to drag me along to seances. Right. So okay. Now they we're, we're
0: into some good shit. <laughs> yeah.
1: They, and they were, you know, that was interesting enough, I suppose. But so they had they, a thirst,
0: thirst for it. They had a real
1: they. thirst. Um, I remember he had books by Edgar Casey and things like that. They were just looking for... Was he for... into
0: philosophy and that kind of stuff as yeah, well?
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then was. when my mum died, he was completely shattered. And a couple oh, of years later, there the was some things called um, the Insight, Insight Training Seminars, which was associated with a, a spiritual church. church. Uh, and he dragged me into the Insight Seminars, which, you know, I those sorts of new age personal growth programs aren't for everybody people have their own opinions about them but it transformed my life I mean I was prior to that I was a loose cannon I had not handled my mother's death I was doing crime Christ I shudder to think um, I certainly would have got locked up if, if I anyway I don't dwell on that part of my life and he knew I was unhappy and lost and way 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 out in left field so somehow he saved my life he somehow just quietly dragged me into this. I found meditation as boring as batshit, but I kind of did it, Um, which is why I still prefer the short form meditation. But I also did another thing tied to mind along the way when I learned about NLP and all that. Is Somewhere in the line, I decided to commute, because I do, I communicate with my unconscious a lot. If I want something done, I ask myself to do it, to cooperate with myself. And I talk about that a lot in my diet book. Um I I've just lost track of my thought I was oh the um, yes, yeah, so I asked my uh, unconscious to meditate me.
0: Yeah okay. this is
1: 25 years ago and you'll and, and I do this it took talk, we're talking about habits again. <clears throat> if I am not actively doing something, you know, I go into downtime, you won't notice it looking at me, but I've just gone into a quiet center. And I I don't think about it. It's just, it's kind of like my rest rest position. Yeah, man, it's crazy.
2: It's
1: like a a meditation.
0: At at an early age and your folks were, you know, kind of onto it because now it's sort of a lot more popular, obviously. And I discovered Mm. it a bit later, sort of like mid, uh, well trying to think, mid-90s. So, yeah, basically, long story short, I I was having panic attacks. I'd never, the thing about them Mm -hmm. was I'd never even heard of them. Didn't even know what they were, never heard the whole flight, fight response, nothing. Mm -hmm. And then I ended up finding this lady who'd been to America and studied, like, all this. And, you know, I went through therapy. And it was pretty much a lot of it that was a bit different, but a lot of it was just that stuff that you were saying, you know, staying, realising that our species is supposed to stay in the present, I really supposed to worry about tomorrow or, you know, uh, yesterday and that kind of stuff and be grateful, stay positive, all those kinds of things and sounds, and, you know, combined with feng shui and yeah, I do a lot of meditating. That was good what I was going to ask you as well. So I, I, cause I've been doing it since yeah mid nineties and it's just become habit and I break it down into a couple of parts. So sometimes when I just sit down and really like, and that's normally when there's no one else in the house, but then I have other short ones that I do like these two minute ones. Like I'll be yep. I don't know, standing in line or, you know, all sorts of stuff and yeah, like little sort of two minute ones. And i found like the benefits from it are just like, I oh, mean, honestly I'll sum it up by without banging on by just saying, I reckon that's what's wrong with the human race, <laughs> you know? And um, yeah, so it's really interesting that you, you know, you were around people that were kind of onto it um, from the start. And, and when, when you, you sort of quickly, I can't remember what you said, but you said something at the start about yeah other levels of of consciousness and stuff like that. And oh yeah, when you were talking about um, self hypnosis and meditation, how it's you know kind of the same thing. Is there um do you have an opinion on like other you know states or levels of consciousness like because there's a couple of, like, let's go, fuck it, right? Let's dive deep, right? So mm. meditation's base level, right? Now, there's some, you know, evidence to suggest that, you know, through that people can kind of have, um, you know, psychedelic-type experiences achieved by breathing techniques. Now, that's not hocus-pocus. It's been done. Mm. Yeah. Um, but, you know, only a small amount of people maybe are kind of susceptible to that. The other thing is, I don't know how many podcasts and that you listen to, but especially over the last few years, the talk about psychedelics and other levels of consciousness has become quite popular and there's a really good doco on Netflix um, called Change Your Mind. They're quite short, it's only a few episodes, 20 or 30 minutes long, but that's got a lot of scientific-backed um, evidence. So yes, as, as somebody who dabbles in meditation, I'm curious in two things, like, so what does your daily meditation routine sort of look like? And yeah, what are your thoughts about these, you know, are you sort of down on these other levels of consciousness? Do you have thoughts about that sort of stuff? I've had, particularly
1: from where I first was dragged into it in a, via a, a spiritual type church and approach, you know, I've had uplifted experiences and things like that. I don't know how to categorise it. Cause there aren't really words for stuff like that. Anyway, I have had psychedelic experiences, but that was had more to do with mushrooms and LSD. Yeah. Um, Back in and the that, day,
0: those other ones you're talking about, you mean that's during meditation, yeah? You've had these up, yeah, evening. yeah. yeah. Okay.
1: But they've they've been, you know, one of the things about meditation is that no two meditations are ever the same, nor no. should they be. And in fact, never if you never I it, really want, the... want to have one like the last one. I'm but already the... putting. I'm already dragging myself into the future. I'm not being present. Yes. So it it is what it is. So, but my daily, because I auto meditate. But I also will often. Mind, mindfulness is is a meditation approach that you can do anywhere. I can sometimes mindfully put on my pants. It's just yeah. being totally present, and you notice the feeling of the fabric as it slides over your legs, and you, you know, yeah, being totally present. Wash the dishes. You know, who wants to, who enjoys washing the dishes? I quite. Often, I do it. We don't have a dishwasher except for me. Well, really
0: it's telling people I tell people it's practicing thinking. So it's that what you said before about that distraction. It's just focusing on what you're doing. Mm. Forget about yeah. the distraction.
1: Yeah. And so I, I, I do mindful stuff as a habit. I so I don't I don't think about it anymore. You don't you know, do, do like, like doing
0: a, it. Sit down like in the deep chair and like in dark room for ten or twenty minutes.
1: Very rarely. Let me ask very you very rarely. Then.
0: Those uplifting experiences that, when you, that you said that you had meditating, what was the scenario?
1: That would have been more sitting in a, a, a longer form. Yeah, it, yeah, okay. Taking take, take longer.
0: Interesting, yeah.
1: Um, because it's about getting into a deeper level of, you know, so one way I kind of think of about it, it, it's a little like swimming on the surface of the ocean and it's all choppy and everything else. But the minute you sink below the water, yeah, it becomes calm and still, and the deeper you go. And speaking of mind control, I don't know, I, I don't recommend you watch the whole thing on YouTube. But the world record for holding the breath underwater—I don't know if you've ever seen that on YouTube. It's it's alarming. It's twenty something, about twenty-six minutes. Yeah,
0: I know it's crazy.
1: I mean, oh, I run out of breath looking at that for <laughs> after about yep. thirty seconds, but that is fantastic. Yeah, know, well, like, control well, the I really, consciousness and mind
0: because really that's what it's about. And I found like, and I tell people as well, right? I oh, wish I didn't have to do all this stuff, but it's just the way I was born, the my genetic makeup, whatever you want to call it. And yeah, I've kind of had similar experiences, and I'd say I can't really describe as uplifting. Mm. And actually, I want to ask you about psychedelics, but going back to the religious thing too, you know, that's like I'm not really a big religious fan, and I actually like I want to go deep now because I've got to know what you think about God and the universe, but um. <laughs> You know I, I don't kind of necessarily agree with religions but i tell people like i always argue actually for religions when that comes up because i say to people well you know the, the it does give a lot of benefit there's a lot of good in it um you know and like if it gives some people hope like you know is that necessarily like a bad thing you know kind of thing so um and and it was interesting for me because i when i started sort of doing meditation and stuff like that i realized um Well, actually, what we'll do is we'll jump to the psychedelics because that, as somebody else who's tried it, I'm really interested to know. And I'll tell you my story real quick, right? So a long time ago, like early nineties, I sort of tried it, but it was kind of what mushrooms say, but it was lost on the youth is the way I describe it. (laughs) Um, But there were certain things that kind of happened that like you do, you don't remember a lot of it, but. You do remember, but I basically just kind of put it down to sort of like hallucinations really, you know, Mm. didn't really think too much, but, but it was pretty like, um, it wasn't how I thought it was going to be. I'll say that it wasn't like, um, you know, all tripping and I mean it was, but it wasn't like all, you know, sort of lose. I felt like an overwhelming, like sense of love, all that kind of stuff. I had like a strong impression that everything's connected um and that's kind of what made me rethink kind of made me rethink god but you know a lot of it like i said you just kind of like ah you know and it was a one-off and then you know fast forward like 30 40 years and then you know particularly about 10 years ago a lot more talk coming out about you know psychedelic experiences what is it you know and look the million dollar question is right are you is it really you know because the theories are your brain's an antenna and Certain chemical compounds and reactions are allowing you to access the parts of the world. And how I describe it to people is like it's like dog whistle, right? We can't hear all the sounds that go on. Now, it's been proven as well. There's a whole heap of light frequencies that we just don't see, Hmm. right? Doesn't mean they're not there. Now, the other argument is, does it even matter whether it's real or not? Because if that's what you saw and that's what you experienced, right? And here's a perfect analogy say you're watching a ai video of barack obama right mm. well it's actually real <laughs> it's not fake people say oh it's fake mm. it's like no you're actually really watching an image of him talking so the fact that that happens to you makes it real so like does it even really matter you know like if it's real or not and then i had an opportunity to basically yeah a couple of years ago had a heart attack nearly died you know, midlife crisis, reassess everything. And I had an opportunity to try some again this time with like approaching it like a lot different. And what you said about the meditation, like this time I went for a lot more controlled environment and all that sort of stuff. And I, I, to be honest, I don't really want to talk about, not that I don't want to tell you, but I don't, I'm, I'm a bit worried about talking about the things that I experienced because it's pretty fucking wild. And, um, it's, it's there's not a lot of words (laughs) that adequately kind of describe it and it really made me like yeah it really made me kind of reassess everything the answer to the question I think is like we, we don't really know um but like you know there was things as well like when I was sort of experiencing it where I realized like oh I've tasted this before that's the way I describe it to people and what I mean by that is like music I realized like You know, like say, like music is a drug, right? Mm -hmm. And like all these good artists, you're musicians, right? Oh, you wrote a good song. Oh, where did it come from? I don't know. It just came to me, right? Well, you know, like another type of person, like I'm strongly connected to music. Like if you saw my Spotify hours, it would shock people. And, um, but I always like, man, I can listen to certain songs and cry. Like I'm not too ashamed to say that. I don't think that happens to like normal or most people. So, yeah, that was a bit sort of long-winded and I just wanted to put out there my experience. But, um, yeah, as someone who, who said you tried it, what do you think about, you know, all that?
1: Well, my experience with psychedelics was back in the early 1970s. So yeah. um, I don't really have any fresh recollection of that. What you say about, um, you know, our reality and our experience and so on, you're quite right. In fact, the core thing of I talked about neuro-linguistic programming, is about modelling. I mean, there is the world, whatever that is, and through our very limited sensory system, we create a model of that in our heads that is our reality. The matrix. And yeah, absolutely. We create our own matrix, and, and every one of them, every individual on the planet has a different model, a different matrix, a different reality in their head, partly because you know, they've got different experiences, but, you know, a colorblind person doesn't have the same visual acuity as a as a as a as a non-colorblind person somebody who's deaf and lost some frequencies will have different limitations in that sensory channel and so we have our individual reality which is a very limited model of whatever the fuck is really out there yeah and then we create another model of that called language to communicate and so we strip it down even more to find words to endeavor to share our limited model of whatever the reality is you know I, i i can look and lie on the back as i sometimes do i live in a beautiful part of the world and look up and stare into the into the heavens and i'm well aware that there's a whole lot more than me and a whole lot more than i can comprehend and I, I'm not a I'm not a, a God type person
2: I like the I like the word universe I like the word
1: universe because there's whatever, I mean I heard a kid talking in an interview just the other day that, you know, an annoying kid was talking about the issue of God and was going on about well, okay, so on the first day God created da-da-da-da-da-da-da and this little kid said, well, what did he do before that? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and 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 similarly with space. Now, the astrophysicists might have answers for all of this sort of stuff. But okay, if there is an end of the universe, I don't know a wall or a or something. What's on the other side of it? These things that are so much bigger than our. And I think I used this little line because I only heard him say it recently. Um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's an American astrophysicist, yeah, and I he said there's one. Yeah. The wonderful thing he said recently. He said, well, the thing about it is that as the area of our knowledge grows, so too does the perimeter of our ignorance. And yeah, I love I that a yeah. whole yeah. lot. I love that.
0: Yeah. So I don't
1: have any answers.
0: No, I just, I'm, look, no one know, Look, The bottom line is no one really knows, but I'm always interested to know people's opinions because it's the same thing with the whole other levels of consciousness. Like, mm. We, we can't really prove it, you know, yet. Maybe someday we will, but I'm always interested to know. And look, some people couldn't care less, right? But it's one of those things I I wish it didn't right, but that shit fascinates me. And, you know, I've seen enough and experienced enough to think, it's the one thing that's, sorry to cut you off when you're talking there, yeah, the what no. I was going to say, the one thing everyone does tend to agree on is the fact that this isn't it. You know, there's there's more to it than this. And what what this is, is sort of like yeah and i'm sort of similar to you with the god thing i um because when i talk about god i actually it's funny right i actually that's what i say i say the universe (laughs) so i say oh the universe told me or the universe doesn't care or you know and really what i'm kind of like saying you know is god and i think that as humans we're kind of yeah we're kind of evolving i reckon to a to a better level of understanding of like what's actually really going on and you know i don't want to get stuck into religions but you know um i think a lot of them are just same clubs with different rules and it's interesting how they all kind of have a one you know kind of story but yeah if you if you're interested in any of that kind of stuff man go on netflix because the other thing is i'm a science guy right so that's what i like about neil degrasse tyson right because don't worry UAPs and all this other shit that's going on. I would love to get caught up <laughs> with that and believe in aliens. But unfortunately my rational scientific show me the evidence brain just doesn't kind of allow me. And when you do start getting a little bit carried away with some kind of theories, I always like to go listen to someone like Neil deGrasse he'll just bring me back to earth with like the facts and the, you know, this is what we do know and this is what we don't know. But even he, you know, even he'll say he was on Rogan recently and yeah, he'll, even say on there, you know, that a lot of it we still don't know, and like we're learning a lot more, hopefully eventually we'll get to a point, but yeah what I was going to say is like, yeah, that Netflix man, it's called Change Your Mind and the right. thing I like about it is the fact that it's scientific based you know? This is,
1: right, this is about the, um, the, the current research into uh, uh, psychedelics and stuff, is it? Yeah, pretty much
0: yeah, in yeah. a nutshell, I won't go into it too much now, but it's, it talks about the history of it, so Cause there's a guy um, who's wrote a book, which I can't remember. I think it's called like uh, something of the gods, chalice of the gods or something like that. that's wrong. But um, you know, guys have basically found psychedelics, man, in like old jars in temples, thousand years oh, Chariots old. Chariots and... of the gods, maybe. Chariots of the gods. That's it, yep. man. You're onto it. Yeah. It's and that's an old, it. And it's classic, you know, and I honestly think like that's probably where religion actually like really came from. Right. Because, the stuff that you experience while on there, and even though you probably don't remember much, you probably remember that, you know, it is all those kind of theories about, like, treat everybody as you want to be treated, an overwhelming sense of love, everything's connected, be nice to everybody, stay in the present. Um, the one thing that was great for for me and was getting rid of ego, like, it just fucking strips that shit back bare, man, and exposes it to you, and it just it just shows you like how constantly distracted we really are with the ego and how much it like really kind of rules, like what you do. And once you start, because really one of that stuff that you were talking about too, at the start of meditation, really a lot of it is the ability to be objective. It's to remove yourself from it, Mm. sit back, look at it all and sum it up like objectively without being, you know, Ira or Warren. And that's a skill that takes a long time. And a lot of people, yeah don't really, to have but when you start looking at it and look it, it's a bit of an age thing too like I think it's a natural process like I don't want to sound like a smart ass but you know I'm fifty now and that's about the only reason I've actually figured some of this stuff out mm-hmm. you know how to look after yourself be nice be positive mm-hmm. and and be mindful and all that kind of stuff so yeah and that's what I like about it like I said the, it's coming from a science point of view and I think we've still got a long way to go to understand it but yeah there's definitely and the problem is as a species i think we've just gone away from what we're meant to be doing and all that those techniques that you were talking about really that's what what we should be doing and that's why you know the hunter gatherer is what we've done most it's connected to our dna and this like living in modern society and you know offices and houses and constant and what you said before about the kids man they just bombarded with it just yeah. constant constant distraction so yeah it's something that's I find very interesting. And yeah, that, that, that doco on Netflix is good because it exposes, you know, a lot of it, man, not really, but a lot of it comes down to big farmer, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. making well, big, money.
1: Big, big, anything, big industry, um, you know, Yeah, there's big farmer, but you know, you've big, big oil, time. you got big the military industrial, you got big,
0: big is, yeah. uh, there's a lot is, of factors at play, which issue. they go into. And, but yeah, I find it, Definitely an interesting subject. So, well, the research
1: probably... is certainly with uh, psychedelics is is creeping along, and I and I believe that the Australian government is about to change a little bit of scheduling to allow a couple of the well, university programs to there go. There is ahead. a
0: few already. Um, most of them are East Coast based because I'm a member of a couple of groups over here, and I've actually got two um, professors coming on i'm particularly interested right in australian psychedelics and links to like aboriginal Mm Dreamtime. there's a guy in queensland alistair mctaggart i'm hoping to get him on another perth professor so i'm going to do a whole podcast on it and get into it and kind of like yeah talk about it but um yeah i find it fascinating man. we could go down that whole rabbit hole and spend hours and hours on it but yeah we probably should um we probably should wrap it up so um yeah, it's been hit. a good chat. Yeah, I, really, I was going to say, I really enjoyed it, man, and um, I, I knew you were, like, a an interesting person, and I guarantee you, we probably only just uh, can scratch the surface on a lot of that stuff.
1: Yeah, well, it's been, it, 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 yeah, thanks, it's been a pleasure, it's been fun.
0: Um, well, it's easy to get caught up, like I said, you know, you think you're not that interesting, but... I'll guarantee you, like, you know, I'll get messages from people saying, oh, wow, man, that guy's had a... You've packed a fair bit of shit in, man, I'll give you that. And i I got a lot of respect for, like, yeah, people that, you know, just constantly and, you know, get things done. And actually, two things I will kind of wrap up with, you know, what do you reckon... Are there any regrets? Uh, what's the one thing you reckon you could give someone advice from your life experience? And the thing that we didn't really get onto as well as that may even relate to kids, because obviously... You're a parent, you know, you've got like uh, old growing up kids. Is there any advice you could kind of just like, what's your motto? What do you throw out there to the universe?
1: (laughs) It's actually interesting. The last day of term I was with the the kids and sometimes because I'm the token old bloke at the school. So sometimes I'll just have a, you know, ask me anything session with them. And one of them said, if I had what could I in one word, which was a bit of a tough ask. You know what was my advice or whatever and I thought about that and I thought participate have a go you know I, yes. I think my life has it's its interesting because you say I've done a lot of and I have done a lot of things but I consider myself one of the laziest people on the planet um, <laughs> which is an interesting perspective for me but yeah participate have a go um be curious. That's one thing I have always been, and I guess my parents gave me curiosity or I wouldn't have done all these different things, you know, sometimes to my detriment. But, you know, what what is that? How does that work? And of course, that was the important part of being an investigator for 25 years, was always asking questions. And what happened next? Wow. How does that work? How does that go wrong? How did he die? How did that blow up? Um, (laughs) Things like that. So, yeah, participate and be curious. It's a yeah, journey. We get, one, we get
0: one shot at it. That's it. Yeah, that's pretty good advice, man. That's one thing I've definitely learned over the last couple of years. And, you know, one of the reasons I went back karting because I realized, you know, I, I actually wasn't too bad. I, to have better success, all I had to do was keep going. Mm-hmm. But I didn't, I stopped participating. And I stopped going. And then I realized, like, yeah, I just got to, what you said, participate. You just got to show up. And the first bit's always the hardest bit once you're there. You generally enjoy it. And it's the same with the diet. So yeah, man, I appreciate your um, your time and um, I think that's a pretty good spot to wrap it up. So yeah, okay. unless there's anything else you want to add? No, I uh, I thank you and um, we'll catch up soon. Yeah, good chat man, I really enjoyed it. Cheers. Cheers, buddy. Bye bye.
2: Thank
0: you. supremacy, <laughs>
2: Starting to drip Western Supremacy Intense Chemistry Expect this when we sound like this Western Supremacy
0: Intense Chemistry Best best be aware (laughs) Western Supremacy Supremacy Let's get it Intense Chemistry Western Supremacy
2: Intense Chemistry Best best be aware New blood starting to drip Drip (laughs)